This episode is brought to you by All Occasion Vials. At All Occasion Vials, they know that you can get a serviceable, ordinary-looking vial at any of any number of places. But if you need a vial to hold something extra special, it's going to need an extra special shape. A very special shape. So you can find it in a hurry if you need to, among all your other knickknacks. Well, with the feast days upon us again, they are offering our listeners a deal you can't afford to miss. Go to their website and use their handy, customized ordering tool to create your own unique genitalia-shaped file. Use the promo code REREAD, one word, and if you order five obscenely shaped vials, you get the sixth one for a penny. That's right. Heck, that's enough Schwanger vials to last you most of next year. And thank you, All Occasion Vials, for sponsoring the Rereading Wolf podcast. Warning. The following discussion is deliberately riddled with spoilers and unhinged speculation on this nearly 40-year-old book, Gene Wolfe's The Book of the New Sun. You can't read a Gene Wolfe story. You can only reread a Gene Wolfe story. Welcome to Rereading Wolf. We'll abandon the literary artifice that this is the first time you and we have read these books. We're going to try to understand, and that means considering the books as a whole. Hi, I'm James Wynn. And I'm Craig Brewer. Well, welcome back. And we have so many comments this week. We are blessed with too much. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know what? Look, let's get something off the table right away. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. It's a mistake. Nigel has come in with a correction. Nigel says, correcting me, a chain is 22 yards, not 33. Yes. Yes, it is true. I can't do simple division. That's true. <laughs> That's exactly how long a chain is, tw 22 yards. Thank you, Nigel. You're right. Um, let's see. Michael Andre Drisi uh, postulated on email a reason to send Severian to the Echopraxia instead of the witches is that Gerloise knows Severian's sister is there. Hmm. I'll have more to say when Severian actually encounters the witches, but that's a good point. On Severian leaving Valeria's residence, he suggests, I think, that Severian can't find the door later just because he's really bad at directions. <laughs> well, he is bad at directions, yep. and we'll talk about that in just a bit. But, you know, he couldn't find it by air either. I do wonder whether if he had walked away from the door a bit and turned around, if he would have seen it, you know, maybe you can only find it from a particular direction. And that's how Triskely left and found his way back. He could smell the right way. But for Michael, Triskely is tied to a much bigger theory and we'll definitely have to take that on in Citadel of the Autark, if not earlier, just, so many twisty threads. 
He also pulled a lot of threads about Kaibitz and Severian's mother. A lot of good points, but I'll have to think about them. Let's see, more on Severian's memory. Lawson Duvier, also on email, postulated that Severian really does have a perfect memory, but Thecla doesn't, and she's messing up the works. He's starting a reread, so hopefully we'll hear more from that later. On Reddit, former Earthlister B Sharp, whose theories we've batted around before here, picked up on the Reddit discussion about the number 17. He noted that in the new Godzilla movie, Godzilla is one of 17 giant ancient animalistic monsters compared throughout the movie to the mythological titans. And I love that. I love that because we've got 17 and we've also got it connected with total amount numbers of kaiju, which of course the Undines are kaiju and Abaya is kaiju and Erebus is kaiju. So I just thought that was, yeah. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they come from the sea, most mm-hmm. of them. Yeah. Yeah. Really interesting conversation. On the Facebook page, Nigel, again, has been reading Great Expectations by Charles Dickens with an eye to the parallels in the text. There is a lot he's extracted there. Although Michael Andre Dreisi has addressed these parallels as well, some of them in his new chapter guide to the Book of the New Sun, Nigel is drilling deeper. Yeah, Nigel's getting down to actual quotations and, and mm-hmm. descriptions of things, which I said it on there has convinced me that he's onto something. And mm-hmm. that even though we've all, that analogy to Great Expectations has been out there for a long time, I don't know that anyone's actually taken the time to go as closely as Nigel's doing right now. I mean, Michael may have, and and it just, maybe some bits of it didn't show up in what he's written quite as much. But yeah, I, in fact, I'm even at a point where my son just read Great Expectations, and I seriously wish I could have had the time to, to read along with him completely. But uh, I'm going to reread it here pretty soon and have to do exactly what Nigel's doing because he's convinced me that there's more than we've ever quite realized before. I would think I would like to look at it with an eye to whether the plot itself can be lain Mm -hmm. over the Book of the New Sun. It does sometimes happen. And, you know, when it does, it can be very revealing to the backstage plot. Well, if you think about the general idea that we, I mean, we were just talking about how Severian's life probably does have a whole conspiracy behind it that is leading him up to this point. Pip's life is all about a strange set of circumstances that go on behind the scenes that lead him to have whatever great expectations he's supposed to have. So there's more than just the graveyard scene in the beginning. There's actually a lot there about the plot. And if there are things to map on to who Pip's benefactors were and about who Severian's benefactors, I guess would be a fair word for him too, were in all of the things that happened to him and who are possibly controlling or affecting his fate, then yeah, there definitely may be some things to to figure out there. Oh, we got a couple comments on the Apple podcasts, more than a couple. Der Grimm Nebulin says the show, quote, gets the theory wheels turning in all the right ways. <laughs> Sweet. <laughs> also, great outro music choices. <laughs> oh, Craig. I think I'm going to cry. <laughs> well done, James. Those are James. James's. I gave him the responsibility. Left that up to him to do that. And you have exceeded all of our great expectations. <laughs> well, it also, uh, Sympathizer posted. He said, this is exactly what the description says. A full spoiler reading of Wolf. 
considering how tightly constructed the narrative and themes of the new sun are, this is much welcome. Cool. Thank you so much. Good. We were afraid we'd just be talking to ourselves, which we might still be. <laughs> Who knows? Even before we released the last episode and made a request for some comments, a reviewer PVCH posted, this podcast is like an early Christmas present. I appreciate the level of detail the hosts bring, going so far as to read out long passages for each chapter. And he says, by far though, the thing I like most is that they maintain a good tone when discussing some of the more bonkers theories that avid wolf readers have come up with. They're nice about them and don't ridicule the theories while noting when they tend to be built on layers upon layers of logical leaps. I also like how one of the hosts is a bit more skeptical, constantly asking how would such a theory advance any plot or theme in the book? Now, I wouldn't say I'm exactly skeptical. No, <laughs> no, no. Of course, he's referring to Craig. It occurs to me that people may think that these are roles that we put on for these episodes. And I assure you, it is not. It worked out well. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it worked what out well. What this thing is, is exactly the only way it could have been when we were doing it together. Skeptical Craig, conspiracy winding James. Yeah. But not on in our own camp, because as I think I've said many times, I wouldn't be doing this if I didn't love all the speculation and theorizing yeah. that goes on. The uh, He goes on. They're a lot nicer than I would be, but personally, I think they should have a third host that just rings an obnoxious wrong buzzer whenever the hosts get too far into the weeds. <laughs> well, you know what? We do have a third host who plays exactly that role. It is you, dear listeners. Without you, Craig and I would just be chasing each other around in circles. That is very true. Oh, and... And I can do the truth. Stephen Frug was disappointed that our episodes <laughs> in Chapter 6, The Master of the Curators, we made no mention of Severian's comment about the Book of the New Sun itself being a book of gold. He chided us, aren't you the spoiler cast? <sighs> yes, yes, Mr. Frug. So Severian says, perhaps I have contrived for someone the Book of Gold. Indeed, it may be that all my wanderings have been no more than a contrivance of the librarians to recruit their numbers, but perhaps even that is too much to hope. So, maybe Severian is neither a pawn of the heroes or the Megatherians. It was the librarians all along. <laughs> and by extension, we should also mention Wolf's Comet in the Castle of the Otter. The next best thing to the Book of Gold is a book about the Book of Gold. If the Book of the New Sun is the Book of Gold for you, then that's what you're holding in your hands, a book about it. So I think the implication there is that, yeah, the Book of, the Gold, the book of Gold can be different books. Mm -hmm. And Book of the New Sun may be the Book of Gold for someone. He even talks yeah. about in the earlier parts of the chapter how, in some ways, Dying Earth at a certain part of his life was kind of like right. the Book of Gold. Exactly. But thank goodness we have listeners to keep us straight on the facts and to drive us mercilessly to be comprehensive. Uh, Stephen Frug also spawned a, a little side discussion about how much of Earth of the New Sun was already in Wolf's mind when he wrote the book of the New Sun. Was Earth of the New Sun a true sequel? 
an extension to world building of the Book of the New Sun, or merely an elaboration on a world that Wolf already built around the original story, or the world which he first built and wrote Severian's perspective within it. Craig, you said, I'm always looking for a way to know that Earth was more concrete in its details while Wolf was finishing New Sun, Mm -hmm. because then the connections back to the first four seem stronger. Mm -hmm. If he wrote Earth completely after turning in Citadel drafts, then much of Earth is simply new and only consistent after the fact. That makes it harder in my mind to locate hints and analogies looking forward. Mm -hmm. But if he was still, but if he was at least still editing Sword and Citadel, then it just feels more unified in my mind. Yeah. Stephen replied, I get what you mean about wanting to tie Earth and Book of the New Sun together. I feel the urge to, too. But I feel the contrary impulse, the notion that Wolf expected readers to get all of that out of the Book of the New Sun is nuts, even if Wolf did think it all out as a backstory. That he wrote it out implies at some level that he knows it's not gettable, which is a saner view of the world, literature, (laughs) human cognition, interpretation as an act, meaning as a phenomenon in life. So now my belief is that Wolf probably did have the major plot details of Earth of the New Sun in mind when he wrote New Sun. And he never intended for people to get it. But he didn't especially care if we ever put the stone town together with the conciliator and Severian's comment about the first Severian statement in the Citadel of the Autark to understand that Severian died in the stone town and went back in time. And he probably didn't know about Gunny or certain other characters. Did he know what the specific details of the test would be? I'm not sure. I wouldn't be surprised. He writes these stories in a world that have extensive backstories, and he cares so little whether we get it, that he doesn't write a book detailing Thecla's life or Catherine's life or Typhon's, even though they would have sold like hotcakes. He just moves on. He writes Soldier of the Mist. He readdresses characters like the Megatherians and Jolenta and maybe Typhon in An Evil Guest, but that only leaves us to wonder what was new and what was recycled. Gene Wolfe was just a very bad, bad man. (laughs) You and I had a discussion the other day about what exactly Wolfe expected to be discernible of the backstory from this text. Mm -hmm. We know Severian's grandmother. We know his father, Owen. But what about the other stuff, his sister and the part she plays, if any? his mother, and how and why she came to the Madachin Tower, all that. I mean, are we expected to be able to figure that out? It certainly wasn't spelled out in Earth of the New Sun. Yeah, so many things that are there that, I don't know if I've said before, but I feel like one thing about Wolf's puzzles is the hard part sometimes is not figuring out the puzzles, but figuring out what's actually a puzzle <laughs> and what's, <laughs> what's just a mystery. Yeah. Um, because if you're trying to treat sort of a mystery or a 
just a part that's supposed to remain vague as a puzzle, well, then you're going to drive yourself nuts, right? Um, but that's yeah. the trick with Wolf is is figuring out, well, what are the puzzles? What are the, the mm -hmm. things that are there to figure out? And yeah, certain things like, uh, you know, and, and it's sort of, it depends on each case on how that works. Like we were talking about figuring out, um, are you supposed to figure out who Severian's mother is? And my point with that one was that, well, if since he does come flat out and tell us that Dorcas is his grandmother, it seems like the immediate question you're going to have after that is, okay, well, I know then that means when was his father or Owen was his father? Well, then who is his mother? Like that's an immediate question that has to come up almost logically, right? Yeah. It just has to be there. So that seems like a deliberate puzzle to answer. But then there are other ones like you might say, okay, well, what about his maternal grandmother are we supposed to be able to figure her out and then i'm like ah, i don't know because then we're getting multiple steps away yeah. right we're, we're that's multiple logical leaps and so that's when it gets a little harder to know if that's really a puzzle or not but but again that's sort of a judgment call yeah. no catherine is a named character right yeah surely yeah. we're supposed to know something about that story right right so but it's just hard to know like it's i like to think that wolf had every detail planned out and that if i want to go figure out anything at all that I can just follow the clues. But of course, that's not the case for every little thing. Um, right. So figuring out what he planned and what's actually there as, you know, part of the story that we can actually glean right. is hard. It's a hard thing. Well, let's figure something out. Sweet. Chapter eight, the conversationalist. This is a uh, bridging chapter, a lot of exposition about the house absolute and Nessus. We're really just gearing up for the next chapter. Yep. A bit of back and forth with, um, with Thecla. And then, and then, yeah, sort of it's, it's odd because it's Wolf doesn't really have too many chapters like this where not a whole lot goes on. I mean, I can think of a couple uh, sort of moving there's like in claw there's one where he's kind of moving around after the anna chamber mm -hmm. um and it's just sort of getting him from point a to point b yeah not too many like this which is probably a good thing yeah no one thrills to the bridge episodes in tv but the fact that every season has you know one or two testifies to their narrative importance yeah uh, arguably wolf didn't provide enough of these to answer all the questions that we have so <laughs> be grateful so who do you think the conversationalist is is it thecla or is it severian or is it or is it roche yeah well it, it's two conversations there's only one person that's in both of them so that's maybe true. maybe it's severian that works yeah that works. It, it is his job to be a conversationalist it's kind of like with thecla's job at the house absolute that's true that's true yeah. he's been told he has to that's his his work. Right? Yeah. So it's the following day after Gerlouise has told Cerverian that his new duty is going to be to keep Thecla company in her cell during her term at the Madachin. So this means it's been three days by my count that Severian went to the library. Sev takes her supper to her. He stays for a watch. We A watch is actually an hour and 15 minutes. That's what he says at the end of, of Claw. Drota is checking in on them frequently through the slot in the door. They play word games. She's much better at them than Severian. They talk about accounts of the afterlife for people who've died and come back, which is ironic. She tells him what she's read in the little religious book that he brought her. They talk about it on a more theoretical level 
the orthodox descriptions and the, quote, eccentric and heretic theories. When talking about then heretic theories, that makes me wonder, we never really learn a whole lot about the official religion, if there is one of the Commonwealth, um, or po possibly multiple religions. Um, I know in the next chapter, there's going to be a point where um, the Androgyne says that Roche looks kind of like a fire spirit from the South or something like that. Uh, but we don't really know what that means, and it never comes up again that I can tell. We certainly get legends of the conciliator, but and there is a cathedral, but what the actual religion is, is odd. But when they talk here about heretic theories, I mean, certainly that could just mean oddball religions, right? I mean, or, or sort of secondary or strange things. But he did choose the word heretic, which just makes me wonder, is there some kind of official religion? We haven't seen any, any mechanism for enforcing uh, orthodoxy. That's, uh... But no, so that's, of course, she's going to start talking here about some of those eccentric and heretic theories. Mm -hmm. um, so maybe we can get into that. But just I wanted to point out that, yeah, the hierophants are mentioned here. The only reason that I think hierophant is an interesting word to use, which I think the way that he's using it here is just kind of as some sort of ecclesiastical official in some way or another. But the fact that it's hiero, just because that's a, an important term, you know, or prefix later um, for all the others. The fact that we do have a religious figure here being called a hierophant to me is important because it does suggest that all of the, the other hiero beings are at least in the vocabulary, whether or not in the truth, but in the vocabulary that Wolf's decided to use here are connected in terms of religion. So, so, but we can get into their conversation. Yeah. Oh, so, so I guess Thecla is probably leading this conversation. This is what she wants to talk about. And so, you know, they do. Thecla says that when she's free, she's going to found a new religion or cult. So arguably she's already embracing hope, which Severian said he wanted to spare her from. M most women are more practical, he told us, but Thecla's, you know, not an average woman. However, I have a different opinion. Uh, I'm not so sure that this is simply hope. She says that her cult will be founded on her testimony of wisdom that she received during her sojourn among the torturers. She says that they're going to eat that up. The doctrine will be materialist atheism. There is no God, she says, Agatha Demon, great word, or afterlife. The mind is extinguished in death. And yes, that's ironic because her mind will not be extinguished in death. Her <laughs> mind will live on in Severian and all the others who take part in the ritual at Bodalus's camp. Severian says, then, uh, you know, if that's true, there's no Agatha demon. There's no afterlife. Who are you going to say revealed that to you? And she says, well, you know, I haven't decided yet. An angel of ice, perhaps, or a ghost. Which do you think is best? Um, Severian says there seems to be a logical contradiction in that. And when she answers her, quote, her voice was rich with the pleasure the question gave her. She says, precisely, that will be the appeal of the new belief. You can't found a brand new theology on nothing. And nothing is so secure a foundation as a contradiction. Look at the great successes of the past. They say their deities are the masters of the universes, yet they require grandmothers to defend them as if they were children frightened of chickens, or that the authority that punishes no one 
while there exists a chance of reformation, will punish everyone when there is no possibility anyone will be improved by it. So, anyway, I don't think she's speaking in earnest here. No. I was just going to say, I really, yeah, I think this is definitely sort of, it's a mind game. It's a fun game to fill the time, but it uses her mind. It occupies her mind um, a lot like philosophical conversations. I also get the feeling like she's not, not that she's baiting Severian, but she's kind of saying these things to see how he'll react to find out, okay, what are your beliefs about things? Yeah. Are you, uh, you know, try and learn a little bit more about him. Yeah. I don't really think she's actually going to start a cult. Um, but I, I, I think she's maybe grooming Severian by she's letting him in on a little anti-conventional secret between them, you know, hopefully breaking down his allegiances to other rules and loyalties, injecting a little bit of relativism in there. And that makes a lot of sense to me that that there could be a little bit of subtle manipulation of a sort here because. Mm -hmm. You know, like I said, she's trying to it seems like she's trying to see how he reacts to her saying, first of all, something scandalous that, you know, there is nothing past this, which apparently in a somewhat religious society where there's a cathedral might itself be problematic. Mm -hmm. But then also to say it's all based on a contradiction, as every religion is based on a contradiction to kind of see, okay, what are your beliefs? What are your faiths? Are you are you going to are you going to? crack and if he's not then at least what it also does is say hey you like me and i think these strange ideas that mean that the authorities may not be right about everything and so maybe your authorities don't need to have quite the right power it's not a long stretch to say that she's this is not like one step in her master plan or anything like that to escape but it definitely does seem yeah she needs a secure ally right she needs and severian's going to be that ally yeah uh, maybe maybe she does think that torturers are irreligious and is identifying herself as an intellectual compatriot. I don't know. But that's her point. Right. One thing I like about this, too, is that it's possible that even though it's kind of jokey the way she's talking about it, there might be something that Wolf is saying in earnest here. It's always kind of fun to think that when he has characters joking, he's actually kind of having them say something that he might not believe 100 percent but mm -hmm. that he would still kind of support think or think it has a point right that's the point is to be provocative in in a literary fiction in ways that maybe you wouldn't necessarily endorse in part or generally but you think they have a point right right and the one thing this passage makes me think of is wolf was a huge fan of gk chesterton and Chesterton would often write about how the reason that Catholicism was the greatest religion in the world was because it was based on a contradiction or an absurdity that was true nonetheless. I mean, that's Chesterton has some really fun essays where he just kind of flat out is, is making that point. And for Chesterton, it's not a problem. It's actually it's it's a true benefit <laughs> of why why his faith is is so powerful. Um so to have that kind of argument here look like, you know, sort of a cultured person's way of dismissing something, but also to know that Wolf may have in a totally different context found someone who he really thought, you know, bought that idea, but but believed it in a very different way. Mm -hmm. He puts a different spin on this, especially because I feel like we're kind of also getting a sense here in this chapter and the last one that Thecla's approach is as that cultured person who knows a lot about things but doesn't necessarily buy into them quite so much you know she's she has the luxury of not really having to 
<laughs> believe one thing um, right. and put all their eggs in that basket. And there's something about that here that to have her present something that to her seems ridiculous that other people might say, oh, actually, you don't uh, understand how <laughs> that could be. And then there are things about the book later on where even with some of the things that we've talked about with symbols so far with with how they can be both materially true, but also theologically true. And that's not a contradiction. Right. Even though it can look like one. There's a part of that in here, too. So, yeah. So anyway, I just like this, that it, there's a lot of different things that could be going on in, in Wolf just sort of throwing this out there as a yeah kind of mind game at this point. Exactly. And there probably is a degree of practical atheism among the exalted families. But anyway, Severian says all this is way above his head. But she says she is, oh, no, they're not. You're as intelligent as most young men. You know, flattery. And she says... But I suppose you torturers have no religion. Do they make you swear to give it up? See, this is a potential viewpoint by an outsider would have on the guild. You know, how can they do these terrible things if they have a moral code? But Severian says, no, not at all. We have a celestial patroness and observances, just like any other guild. And, you know, I want to point out that they have a celestial patroness. And this implies that the guild's patrons are not patrons in the Catholic sense. They don't expect St. Catherine to intercede for them. But anyway, back to the story. The Thecla answers Severian that the royal classes, the exaltants and such, have no patrons or observances. For a moment, she seemed to brood on that. She says that only the guilds and army does. The army is a kind of guild, after all. And she says, we'd be better off, I think, if we did. Is this Thecla moving toward a religious conversion, or is she just trying to tell Severian what she thinks he wants to hear? It's not either or, right? Yeah, I think it's probably a bit of recognition that, you know, maybe we are a little bit too self-absorbed and we don't really stand for anything. And we're all just kind of up there, you know, playing our political games Mm -hmm. and hoping for a religious meaning would be like saying, I really wish there was something beyond just the same old power games that we play over and over. Like, I wish there was a purpose to what we were doing. And it could be just sort of like one moment when she's saying that. Um, But I think especially with, like you talked about last time, if Thecla is connected to Votilus, like if she's kind of decided that she wants to join this apparently revolutionary thing, then it would also make sense that she would kind of be like, I totally understand why people would want some bigger meaning. Oh, yeah. That part seems like it would make sense. Well, Votilus is kind of a conservative party, a conservative re- revolution, right? He wants, he, he doesn't want the new sun. He doesn't want change. He wants things to continue along as they are. That's why he, mm-hmm. presumably he's in league with these with these powers. So Thecla says that they still celebrate all the feast days and nights of vigil because they're events, opportunities to wear new dresses. They talk a little bit about her dress, which Severian has already said is white with dirty cuffs and hems. It's embroidered with little pearls. It's what she was wearing when she was arrested. Right. Severian says that he thinks Master Gerloise would get her other clothes if she asked. And she says she's already asked. And Gerloise says that he sent people to the House Absolute to get her clothes, but they couldn't find it. And she thinks that means that House Absolute is trying to pretend that she doesn't exist. So Gerlouise is supposed to have had his secretary send a letter to the chateau in the north. Okay. 
this is going to be revealed bit by bit, but Gerlois doesn't have a secretary. Right. He, he, we've seen no evidence that that's a job at the Medici. That doesn't mean Gerlois Im, implied that he did. She could just be naively extrapolating based on her own exultant presumptions. Mm-hmm. Right. And secondly, we're going to find out that no letters have been sent regarding Thecla to anywhere. This, right. it, and this makes sense, right? If we consider the situation in the Matachin Tower here, first of all, the autark has closed the roads between the cities. We'll, we're we're going to learn more of this from Palamon later, but there's no normal way to travel to any of those places, certainly not to the House Absolute. That No way that isn't very dangerous. They have to be accommodating to her while she's here. She could be released, but there's no doubt that it would be better for the guild if she were not released. No matter how gently they treat her, they can't treat her well enough that she would be guaranteed not to resent it later. The guild is, you know, it's a government bureaucracy like any other. There's a principle of a school of economics that says that regardless of their mission, any public entity, whether the police or the Department of Motor Vehicles, is run for the benefit of the people operating that public entity, just like a private corporation. And Gerlois does everything he can with an eye to what is best for the guild, whether it's torturing or having Severian keep Thecla company. So, you know, while it's best for the guild to be nice to Thecla while she's here, there's no benefit to the guild to do anything extra to advocate for her case. It would be best for the guild if she is quietly executed. And anyway, you know, she's in an oubliette. And remember, the literal meaning of that name is a place to put someone and forget about them. Although, you know, it's clear that people do get released from time to time. It's apparently quite uncommon. It's like the prison that John V. Marsh has taken to in the third novella of The Fifth Head of Cerberus. The police tell him, if we decide to arrest you, you should know that it's extremely unlikely you will ever be released. Yeah. And Severian, from the beginning, has told her that hope is dangerous. So Exactly. Yeah. And so he's worried more about her feelings about that. Um, but nonetheless, he's still kind of his job right now is to humor her mm-hmm. a bit, even so. But yeah, I think it makes sense what you say about how, yeah, it's really not going to be in the guild's interest to, yeah, to have her released ever. And so they're not really worried so much about what she's going to think of them. It's more that they need to make sure that they don't do anything wrong. Right. <laughs> <laughs> they're not looking to gain an ally in Thecla by having her released. Right. That that, that ship has sailed. And and anyway, we're going to learn that the circumstances and causes of her arrest, that while the Autark was away, a certain faction in the House Absolute learned that Thecla was sending secret messages to Thea, that Thea was a traitor in Bodilus's militia, and that made Thecla a spy. So they arrested her and sent her to what at this time, for all intents and purposes, is a black site, a, a secret, right. unacknowledged government location for internment. And these sorts of locations became famous or infamous after 9-11. Here, Wolf has one, right down to the torture over 30 years earlier. Some time ago, Ian C. Smith pointed out on the Rereading Wolf Facebook group that the Severian's proposition that the reason the Guild has existed so long is that it diverts anger from the Autark cannot be true because few people outside its immediate shadow even know it exists. And this demonstrates that Ian was right in that, despite my taking a pleasurable opportunity to push back on his argument. (laughs) Although Severian's supposing might have been potentially true for most of the Guild's existence, we don't really know. It's not true now. 
It's just a nondescript government facility in a section of Nessus that's on the verge of dying, as the portions south of it have already died out. Now, remind me real quick, just because for everyone listening, but also for me, because I'm suddenly fuzzy about it. How much do is actually revealed by Severian or in the rest of the story about Thecla's involvement with Vodalus? Is that something that we surmise or... Did they, does it just come right out and tell us? The autarch only sa- only says that she was sending letters to Thea. That they might have been just my dear sister letters, you know. Okay, that's what I couldn't remember how how clearly that was stated. Um, not that I necessarily disagree with it, because we're also going to have something in a second here with her her Kraken bracelet that that does seem to to imply that she might be with some she might be with Vodalus and the monsters but um yeah that's what i just couldn't remember i was like is there a scene in particular that i've forgotten where severian is talking about her memories not that someone else talks about it but and i don't remember one although now i'm no not not i don't think there are no political uh speeches from you know thecla in in severian okay. or anything like that okay but the the autarch does describe how because Severian wants to know why the Autark had Thecla uh, executed. And the, and the Autark says, look, I, right. you assume that everything that happens here has something to do with me. The the faction that sent her to the tower, you know, it doesn't intend for her to be released. They've sent her there so that no one will know where she is. And as soon as they're sure that their actions mm-hmm. are free from blowback, they're going to send orders for her to be executed by some brutal, cruel right. punishment that fits her crime. They seem to know a lot about the ex- the tower's examination room, and Severian supposes that this has all happened at the command of the Autarch, as I said. And but the fact is, the Autarch doesn't find out until after Thecla was executed. And at that point, you know, well, Thecla was a traitor. The fact that she was sending letters to Thea means she knew how to get letters to Thea. Mm-hmm. So unless sure. the plan went yeah. wrong and Thecla's family learned what happened to her and mustered a fence for her, her situation is at this point without hope. No one is contemplating her fate, and that's not why she hasn't already been executed. So good, yep. yeah, yeah. Back to the story. Yeah. Okay. So Severian thinks the House Absolute should be hard to miss since it's probably as big as the Citadel. <laughs> this shows how naive. Severian is. I, I remember I grew up in a small, you know, nearly rural bedroom town about half an hour from Cleveland. Uh, having never been anywhere else, I presumed it to be an average sized town rather than a fairly small one, you know, 10,000 people at the most. Severian, on the other hand, assumes the Citadel to be the standard for bigness and a major city in the world. You know, imagine growing up in a city like Dallas or Atlanta. Whoa, standard for a big city. But you know, a friend once remarked to me about traveling and working in China. He said, you'd be surprised of number of cities with 10 million people in them or more that you've never heard of. Oh, yeah. My sons and I were doing that one day in the car. Uh, my older son had my phone and he was pulling up the biggest cities. Once we got down to like 11 and 12, I have to admit there were names of cities in China. That I didn't know of that I one. Yeah, I heard of that one. And I, I was embarrassed. I was like, oh, that's awful. That's terrible. So, right. So, so yeah. And he assumes that, you know, that the house absolute is going to be this massive palace, you know, that you can see for miles and uh, gleaming towers and domed halls. Exactly. But, and as big as the Citadel rather than something that the Citadel could fit into. So, right. So, you know, Thecla says that the house absolute is easy to miss because it's actually hard to see. 
You could be right on it and never know. And since the roads are closed, the house absolute has spies everywhere who give people who are trying to get there uh, false directions. And interestingly enough, that is what a lot of the apprentices had been saying about the house absolute mm-hmm. before. Not exactly, but they were all arguing about, oh, you can't see it. It moves around. You know, she's confirming some a lot of those rumors that they had. Right. Exactly. That, that probably don't even make sense, mm-hmm. but yep. are in fact, in fact true. Yep. So, so Thecla starts thinking. She has this bracelet, as you mentioned. It looks like a kraken, giant mythical squid with tentacles wrapped around her wrist. And it's made of platinum with eyes of carbachan emeralds. That means that they're just polished and not faceted. She She's surprised that no one took it from her during her arrest and internment process. But Severian uh, says that it's it's not valuable in the tower because no one there can be bribed. But she supposes that it could still be sold to buy clothing. Now, as, as we know that she's a spy for the revolution and that their leadership is supported by Abia, it's a massive megatherian living in the sea. So it's possible that this bracelet has ideological value to her. At least it's a literary foreshadowing of her allegiances coming from Wolf. And I've always nurtured an assumption that her intent in this conversation was to have Severian sell it as a way of getting rid of it as evidence against her. But hmm. now that I think about it, there's not sufficient reason to believe that this was an intent. She doesn't even actually give it to Severian to sell, as far as we know. She asks if her friends have come to try to visit. They haven't. No one knows where she is. Severian says that they wouldn't have been allowed to come in, but Thecla had hoped that someone would show up and try to visit. It would be encouraging to her, since most people in the house, absolute, don't even know about the tower. They know about the Citadel itself. Severian still thinks that the tower is some key landmark of the Citadel. And when in fact, you know, if you walk less than a day away from the Citadel, most people think the tortures are a myth. They know about the Citadel, she says. But I mean, because you can see the spires easily from the southernmost end of the, quote, living parts of the Nessus. This means that th- from Thecla's point of view, the Citadel is well in the dead, forgotten part of Nessus. Exactly. When when it was originally built, the Citadel was an outpost well north of Nessus. They don't know about the tower at all, though those who do think it doesn't exist anymore or have reason to deny it. Which is totally blowing Severian. (laughs) He had no idea how far he would have to take the guild to bring it back to its glory days. Exactly. So one little tiny thing I just noticed, I'm literally, while you were doing that, I'm, I'm flipping back and through because when he mentions the Cabochon emeralds, um, I had, it, it just, all of a sudden something clicked and the old man in the boat says that he and Cass had worked in a jewelry shop and, uh, it, but it's cloisonne work, he said, which is a decorative work in which enamel, glass, or gemstones are separated by strips of flattened wire, edgeways, and a metal backing. That's the Wikipedia idea but Mm -hmm. it's not exactly the same but it's another thing where gemstones are placed in metal in certain ways i don't know i was i was just like oh did could thecla have had a piece of jewelry from their shop um that's big stretch but all of a sudden i was just wondering (laughs) because i had forgotten all about that but i know i didn't thought of that anyway tiny thing but no i think you're right that um i i don't know that she would give it 
to him to sell like because she's she's kind of fingering it right like she's not Mm -hmm. not doing it and she's like they let me keep this and then his immediate reaction is oh we can't be bribed and yeah don't don't worry about it right (laughs) and um so but for her like the one thing that makes me wonder if that really is supposed to be a symbol of her connection to Vodalus or the monsters is because she is um you know stroking the bracelet that's what she Mm -hmm. says that she was keeping it and that it was something that she was kind of amazed that they let her keep and she seems fond of it. Yeah. Um, well, it's, it's very valuable. Yeah. And you know, if, if you go, just so you know, if you go to prison, everybody, they don't let you keep anything that you go there. You have to turn it in and you get it. However many years you get out of prison. Yeah. And one thing, the only other thing that makes me think that is Wolf does have a tick that he'll have characters sort of, the one time they always seem very honest is when mm-hmm. they'll finger something or their, their hands will go to something like Severian will always talk about how his hand involuntarily went to Terminus Est or mm-hmm. there's a moment in Claw. I remember where, when we see the autark for the first time, his hand sort of involuntarily goes to the vial that's around mm-hmm. his, his chest, which is obviously, you know, kind of a symbol of his death because it's, it's the Alzabo stuff that's going to be right. done. And when he sees Severian and kind of realizes, oh, this we're, we're getting close to that point, his hand kind of moves there. So another point here where Thecla would do that, that would totally fit Wolf's sort of way to signal things. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. So the time is over and Drott knocks on the door and Severian leaves. Thecla has to sit alone in her cell and listen to the moaning and screaming of the other clients from her cell. You know, she can even hear the the laughter of the crazy people in the third floor. I just want to go back just the sentence where he, he starts that just cause it is kind of funny. He's like, she was a great, great Chatelaine. And I was something worse than a slave. I mean, in the eyes of the common people who don't really understand the functions of our guild. Um, you know, that is one of those moments where Severian, especially early on here is, still thinking of his role in the Torturers Guild as very important. And Mm -hmm. it's funny that he says that immediately after she says, um, you know, lots of people would deny that this place even exists. So the fact that he puts that sentence immediately after is kind of like, okay, young Severian was still very much like, no, I need to reassure myself that I'm, I'm important. You know, he, he learns quickly that that's different, but right here when he's talking about himself as a, still a very young man. It is. I just thought it was funny that he immediately puts that kind of qualifier there that no, 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 I'm, I'm, you know, I'm not really common. I promise. Um, well, but, and to be fair, it's, it's all framing, right? Oh it's, yeah. Oh yeah. She's, she's a great, great person. And as he points out, she's stuck in a cell. Yeah. He's a, he, he's a nobody, but he has all this awesome power mm-hmm. over, over the people her. in the tower. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So Severian goes back to the apprentice's dormitory and he asks all the other apprentices who Gorlios sent to the House Absolute. Of course, they have no idea, naturally, but now everyone talks about what they think or have heard about the House Absolute. No one, of course, has ever been there or talked to anyone who has, but they've all heard stories of gold plates and silk saddle blankets, incredible wealth. The stories of the Autark are elaborate and contradictory. He's tall when standing, normal size when seated. He's old. He's young. He's, wait for it, a woman dressed as a man. <laughs> his ear is even more 
fantastic. The famous Father Aniri, who looks like a monkey, is the oldest man in the world. And we do know he's actually been around since Imar, at least. Mm -hmm. And I do like that this is another point where all the rumors, some of them do happen to be true. So, I mean, that's very much Wolf, that old lost myths, some of them, parts of them are true. Old lost stories, some of them are, are true. Rumors, some of them are true. Well, I think this part about he's tall when standing, normal size when seated, mm-hmm. I think that's true. And I think I show how. It seemed interesting enough that I was <laughs> wondering if, if you had had something. Yes. Yes, I do. All right. You want to hold off on it? Okay. Yeah, I'm going to hold enough. on five because- okay, fair enough. Because I, I should say, you know, we're going to, because this is a bridging episode, uh, we're just going to push on through and do chapter 10, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah, uh, this is going to, that it's going to come up there. Oh, gotcha. Okay, good. Okay. Well, um, so the other thing here is that we get Father Neri mentioned as looking like a monkey. Yeah. And <laughs> that is the one signal that comes up over and over again, whenever we are definitely supposed to think of father and So I know one thing that happens many times in the discussions is people think that everybody is father and right? Like at Mm -hmm. some point, just about every character in this book, someone has said, Oh, that's really father and in disguise. But I'm very conservative on this. I only stick (laughs) with the ones where they have something monkey like about them. And I don't know why a monkey, like, is it the long arms? Is it something Uh about, hairiness is you know is that the limbs are different Mm -hmm. sizes in a different you know i mean the monkey like thing one thing i always wondered like you think of gray like the the typical gray aliens like the grays like their Mm -hmm. their limbs are really really long and if you think of a gray like holding his arms over his head he might look a little bit like a monkey just because the limbs are so long i don't know is there some sort of stereotypical alien thing that we're supposed to be getting there through a monkey i don't know i don't know so we have a story shift at this point. The, Rosha comes into the room, into the he knocks on the apprentice's door because he can't just walk in as a journeyman. He has to be let in. So while they're all swapping house absolute stories, the, the youngest apprentice opens the door for him. He's not in Fulgen pants and cloak, as the rules say, at, that he has to be all the time. And I think this is the only description we get of torturer's pants. They're, they're, they're Fulgen. And he's wearing a new fashion-conscious outfit. Pants, shirt, coat. He motions for him to follow, and they, so they go down to the stairwell. So we find out that it's been less than three weeks since the ceremony of Drata and Rosha's masking in Chapter 5. It's not 100% clear, but it appears the masking ceremony was on the last or first day of the month. Mm-hmm. Rosha and Severian chit-chat over how everything has been going for the apprentices. Severian gets masked in a year. It'll be another three years before Yada is going to be old enough to be a journeyman. And that means that Yada is never going to get masked because Autark Severian is going to essentially dismantle the torture mm-hmm. facility in, you know, what, a year? So where are they going? Rosha takes him to a room with clothes for Severian that are just like his own, but, you know, with different colors. They also had overcoats and caps and scarves and journeyman boots. Journeyman boots, turns out, are black. Uh, Severian's not allowed to wear those. Then again, he's not allowed to wear a cloak or carry a crown official sword. So, you know. It's cool, too, though, that he calls these clothes the costume. Like he says, my costume was much like his, though, of different Mm -hmm. colors, which is 
totally we would usually i think most people would probably think that a uniform is similar to a costume and then you have regular clothes that you wear but apparently these guys are literally in their uniform exactly that's the what time. they wear and all so the regular time. clothes are literally a costume yeah it's like well, that's a good point dress journeyman boots look like normal boots to the to everyone else but they are a little large for severian that's the Severian is supposedly tall. That's a little surprising, but you know, mm-hmm. maybe a small feet. So he he gets some extra stocks for him, and it's cold, and it's starting to snow, big fluffy flakes as big as the end of a thumb. No wind, luckily. Rosha is responsible for the purse, but he gives Severian a few asimi for his pockets. He wants to get on with it, so they'll get back in time to get some sleep for the next day. Uh-huh, we still don't know where they're going. They leave the tower and they walk around the witch's keep and they walk down a covered walk past the martello to the broken court. Uh, A martello is a a defensive fort. Uh, We can suppose all sorts of reasons why the court that's next to a defensive fort is, is broken, but you know, we really don't know. It, It might be a coincidence. Their boots are creaking because they are both brand new. Even Rosha is not wearing his normal bloodstained boots. And the snow too. I always, I would that one, right? Yeah, creaking our boots, saying, "Yeah, that, that snow sound." So it turns out they're going to a brothel. This is Gerlois' plan to help Severian with the temptation of being cooped up with Thecla. You know, I guess an hour and a half a day. Rosha says, uh, "I don't know how you work this, but thank you." And Severian says that Gerlois told him he'd do this, but he wasn't sure he meant it. He says he'd forgotten it. And, you know, even if I doubted that Gerlois had meant it, I don't think it would slip my mind. <laughs> also, he forgot. <laughs> yep. And it could be there that he's more playing. He's embarrassed. You know, he's a young kid. He's like, oh, oh, you know, I, oh, yeah, I, I just forgot that I did that. Yeah. Well, OK, look, I think Severian's memory, whatever that means means something important. So I think we should keep a tally of what Severian's incorruptible memory is not. All right? Mm-hmm. So one, it's not an exceptional ability to use and interpret what he remembers. Right. For example, sometimes he gets lost. You know, he's running through the Acropolis or through a market or swimming around under Ninophars in the Guile. I mentioned this to a friend and he says he thinks Severian might be map dyslexic. <laughs> yeah, and he does get lost all yeah, he the get, time. He's he gets lost a lot. The memory is no help for that. Oh, uh, you know, actually a deficiency in directional location is a symptom of something map dyslexia. It's it's called dyscalculia. It's like the mathematical alternative for dyslexia. Hmm. It can be really severe for some people. I I read about a woman who got up every morning and found her way to her baby daughter's room by following the sound of her cries. Way off track. The point is that Severian loses his way a lot. The ability to remember things, reorder them in a schema, a map, a plan, that's not a power that Severian's memory gives him. We could argue that his tendency to get lost is due to his having a vivid incorruptible memory. Funus the Memorius, who remembers everything in such detail that he can't recognize people because their faces are always changing. So maybe Severian gets lost because 
every time he passes a busy market corner, everything has changed. People and items have moved around, but you know, that still doesn't explain his inability to follow simple directions. You know, Severian gets lost a lot. So much, in fact, uh, that I feel like it's supposed to be a literary signal of, of what I'm not sure. But a guy with an incorruptible memory who, who consistently can't determine how he got to a particular place has got to mean something, right? right. And I think, too, there's one, I, not that Wolf was anticipating, like, you know, cognitive science and how machines learn necessarily and things like that. But attention has a lot to do with it. Like what you're going to remember depends on what you were paying attention to at the time. It's like I, I could remember right now that I was sitting at my desk and, you know, looking at a screen with the sound waves going up and down while we talk. But would I then remember the colors? Um, would I remember the context? Would I remember the fact of whatever operating system was going on? You know, what was I paying attention to at the time that I'd actually remember? So that's like when you were, were saying that sometimes he just gets so lost in reverie and remembering that he doesn't know what's going on around yeah. him. That could be Severian trying to navigate a city, trying to follow directions. Yep. And it, it could be something like that, too the way that he's thinking about it. but yeah that's one thing i always talk about and he when he has that passage in claw where he talks about you know not being able to necessarily remember the the position of every single thing on master elton's desk when he walked by or something like that right um i think what he means is you know there are certain things that if i wasn't paying attention i can't remember them. and right that's with getting lost that could be it too like what is his attention being it's not like it's a i think a lot of times we think of it like a superpower. And whenever I mention superpower, I mean like as if he had a 360 degree camera on his head at all time that he mm -hmm. could then go back and access any detail and zoom in and something. And I think that passage is there to, to remind you, well, it doesn't really work that way. So, right. Yeah. Okay, cool. Let's move forward. Right. Two, Severian does not make any claim on the objective validity of his memory. He realizes that even though his memories are always within grasp, he can't say that he's not remembering what he wants to remember or that his memory is not lying to him with the same facility that he lies to everyone else. Uh, mm -hmm. This is the point of his discussion about being somehow insane in chapter yeah. three. All right. Three, if he wasn't able to focus on something, to see it or notice it, then he can't remember it. If his vision is blurry, if he ran by something so fast that he couldn't see it, if he wasn't paying attention to it, he can't remember it. That's not surprising. He can't remember stuff that happened to him when he was asleep or when his eyes were closed. That, that, yeah, that makes sense. And number four, right here, we see that his memory does not make him constantly aware of everything that ever happened to him in his life. He can forget about facts until he's called upon to remember them. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I'm keeping track. Nope, that's good because there are plenty of times where he'll do something and he'll talk about when he remembers something. Mm -hmm. So like, it's not that that his memory is like a superpower where just everything is perfectly ready to hand in his brain at every right. moment. Um, that things come to him, memories come to him, and then he'll realize something. Yeah. So especially with Thecla, he'll talk about later on Thecla's memories. All of a sudden, something will click from Thecla because mm -hmm. so, it's not 
all immediately. Right He'll there. recall it. And then, oh, I remember exactly this. I would just add one thing to that, that, that I like, and it's something that he talks about in Claw. There's a passage when it's actually when the Votolari are coming to capture him. It's the first time in Claw, he brings up his perfect memory again. And what he emphasizes there is not the information of it, but how wrapped up he gets in his memory, that when he's remembering these things, the real power of his memory is how vivid they are to him. Mm. And the way he illustrates that is I was sitting there thinking about and, and being lost in memory. I was so lost in memory that I didn't even notice these guys come in the room, take Terminus Est, and they had basically captured me because it takes me like 30 seconds to a minute to sort of get out of this reverie. And that's it's sort of like this extreme thing that when he has these memories, when he lets himself go into it, it's almost a bit like a trance or an altered state or something like that, um, that it's just so vivid that he can't break out of it. And the one thing that also reminds me of a lot is the Borges story, uh, Funes the Memorius, I yeah, believe is what yeah, it is, yeah. about the guy who absolutely does not want to have any new experiences because when he does, he's just overwhelmed with information and his memory just has so much coming down. It's not exactly Severian, but that idea that memory can be oppressive and that Severian yeah. will often talk about his memory as a hindrance. Um, that things that, you know, a hindrance in the sense that it can really slow him down, but it also means that when he remembers something that was meaningful or painful or um, frightening, he's going to have those same experiences and those same feelings at the same time. I wonder if that's the, I wonder if the purpose of Severian's memory is simply to show how burdened earth is at this time before the, the new sun. I feel like that's part of it. Yeah. I mean that the uh, there's, there's an up and down to it, right? Like that the one thing he can, his, his memory can do is sort of bring all the things that humanity has done and, you know, sort of bring them to the, to the test and, and be part of that judgment. So there's the good thing there at the same time. Yeah. I feel like totally that the other thing is how weighty all that memory is that you just feel so burdened by all the things that you've done in the past. I mean, think of it this way. If here's a torturer who's supposed to become a conciliator or some kind of savior, he's going to be literally tortured his whole life by his memory of all the awful things that he did. Right. I mean, part of the point here is that Severian's going to be redeemed or he's going to go through some kind of redemption process, but with his memory, he's never going to be free of mm -hmm. all the errors that he makes along the way. So, yeah, I feel like that's totally part of it. It's, it's both a superpower, but also in the end, something that he suffers from. I feel yeah. like as he says it oppresses him and if you when you think about it if you could suddenly become lo so lost in in reverie that you don't know what's going on around you mm -hmm. yeah that mm -hmm. could be a it'd be kind of like having a problem with constant seizures or something like that so. yeah i just think it's kind of important to say that sometimes because a lot of times with severian especially when we find places where he doesn't remember things i think a an easy reaction is often to say, oh, he's bragging about his perfect memory, but look, he's wrong where, you know, he really literally does come out. And, and I don't think that that memory oppresses me as a humble brag. You know, I think it really is. I feel oppressed by memory sometimes. So as I compile this list, what's obvious is that this memory superpower doesn't seem to have a whole lot of benefits. 
there's not a whole lot of upsides. So, mm-hmm. oh, it, does, it doesn't make him super smart or, or, or adept. You know, it, it doesn't make him constantly aware of everything he ever saw or knew before yeah. in the past. And he has plenty of opportunities to rewrite parts of the story to make himself, you know, look like he can, you know, remember the right thing, but he does show himself failing and remembering right. um, and, and getting lost and all those things over again. So yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Right. So they are going to a special brothel. Uh, it's called an echopraxia with, a subsidy for a woman for each of them. So real quick, did you, with echopraxia, did you think that was a word for a brothel or did you take that as a proper name for a particular brothel? You know, okay. So, so just for the, to lay it out there, you probably know the word echopraxia is a psychiatric manifestation where you repeatedly imitate the physical gestures of other people. By the way, Echopraxia also is the name of a book by Peter Watts. It's the it's a sort of sequel to an even better book called Blindsight. <laughs> but it's a it's a great sort of alien first encounter story. And Blindsight and Echopraxia are part of how they work communication. But anyway, that's another thing. But yeah, great books. Peter Watts. Go look. What was it written? Did he did he get Why, it from here? Uh, just in the last ten years or so. He may have so, he may have picked that up. There's yeah. so many words here you could pick yeah. up. I have a whole story behind them. Mm-hmm. So, echopraxia. And so this name matters, you know, in this case. They're going to House Azure. Mm-hmm. But it's it's capitalized in the text, mm-hmm. the echopraxia. Yep. But that it has a name, House Azure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I wondered. Um, let's talk about House Azure because uh, it's a bit of a mystery to me. And maybe you know something. Azure, of course, means it, like sky blue. But, but blue is one of those words. It, it's a color. It can mean sad. It can mean puritanical or strict. And it can mean indecent or risque or rude. Uh, the Oxford English Dictionary says that the earliest use of, of blue to mean obscene dates to 1818. So, and at that point, it's fully formed. No, and no one's sure why. In the, in the mid-1700s, the, the New England had blue laws that governed commercial activity on Sundays. And that's something I'm familiar with in Texas. But also, no one seems to know definitively why they were called that. I can imagine, you know, blue morphing from laws governing indecent acts to indecent acts themselves. But, you know, really, no one knows. And there's the whole other thing of, you know, comedians would say that if you're someone who uses bad language or tells dirty jokes, you're acting blue. Working blue. Working blue. First of all, is there a house of green <laughs> that's associated with the house absolute? On it, that was my first question. Blue, yeah. I mean, one of Wolf's two favorite colors, right? Blue and green. Yeah. House Azure. Well, the obvious big thing that we know that's going to be blue in this book is the claw. The claw is the giant blue in this book. Not giant, I should say. A tiny, <laughs> tiny blue gem. Giant in meaning, tiny in size. Um, but yeah, it's a blue gem, right? And it's the the light that it gives, the blue glow that it gives, and Azure is. A beautiful, more sort of heightened version of that. I mean, I think I, technically, if I'm right, azure actually is a separate color than blue. I think that's right. But I think in, in the way we normally think of it, azure is is sort of meant to be a higher or a heightened or a fancier. Uh, yeah, I, I think it, I think it's close enough to blue for Wolf's purposes. I like this because 
the claw is a symbol. It's a symbol of the conciliator. And what is House Azure but a house full of symbols of people? Yeah, and that takes it differently from just thinking of it as a brothel. But if you think about it, how it stands in relationship to all these other things in the world, then especially when we first meet it, we don't think that the uh, the guy with the phallus, we don't think he's actually the autark. We think that he's actually instead playing the role of the autark. Just like we know that the kibitz are not the actual concubines. We know that they're supposed to look like them. They're symbols of those things. So there is that connection that there's a symbolic relationship between what it is and and what it's relating to. Sure. And we have, the, once again, like you mentioned, we have the blue-green thing again, because you have House Azure, and then at House Absolute, you have the green room. Right. So that's the thing we were talking about before we recorded. Like, is House Absolute connected to a color? The, it is the one place that Severian has, apart from like the antechamber, the one place that he has sort of a name for where he's trying to get to is the green room. So there is that. Also, I think we could say that where he sees it, right, if there is any visual image of the House Absolute that he has, it's when he first realizes he's walking on the grounds and he's basically walking on grass, right? You know, he looks down and he's, he sees that everything is underneath the green. So the house absolute, although the name is absolute, which could mean unbordered, which could mean not one single color, but the actual colors that we hmm. get associated with it are green. So yeah, so now we have yeah. blue and green. Again, this very significant pairing of colors so, for Wolf. Here's something. Maybe there used to be more than one echopraxia, and now there's only one. You may alternately, you know, perhaps... The echopraxia is an old word for this establishment. And House Azure is the, the newer name appended to the place as the word echopraxia began to lose its meaning beyond the name for this particular place. So they gave it a name that would better communicate the service that it offered. Well, here's what I'm thinking, because when we talk about it that way, the way you just described echopraxia is possibly a earlier name, and then House Azure is a name that that comes after an echopraxia, it just fell off. Echopraxia can be like a symbol, right? Echopraxia means, but it's sort of like a forgotten symbol where you just sort of do something. You repeat movements. Like the, when we're thinking about the psychological disorder, it means where you just repeat movements or uh, you repeat other people's language or their, their movements, apparently blindly or without intelligence. That's kind of like a symbol. It's a repetition of something, but it's a repetition without the meaning. So it's kind of like a fallen symbol in a lot of ways, like a, a symbol that's lost its meaning. I just like that, that, that if what the house Azure is connected to this symbol with the claw, that we talked about the claw being the major symbol because the, the thing itself, I mean, th th we know that the claw eventually gets its meaning because it is the thorn that Severian picks up that he thinks reminds him of the claw that then over time, due to time travel and stuff like that, becomes the actual claw. In other words, it never had any actual meaning in itself, but it, it got its meaning because of its association with Severian and all the, the things that the conciliator was supposed to do. In other words, it's this thing that starts off as nothing but becomes a symbol. Echopraxia then becoming like the house azure, that's actually really cool because it's that part of the symbol making process where you're just sort of repeating things or you're, you're sort of like an empty vessel for meaning that comes along. I like that connection. 
um, because it works really well. In a lot of ways, that's what the claw is. It's just this thing, right? It's a thorn that, that Severian picks up and he's like, this will do. <laughs> it's it's like it's a lot like the thorn that he thinks he might have lost, whether or not it is. I mean, we, we'll talk about that part later, but, you know, it's never, to me, it was never clear if the, the thorn he picks up is the actual claw that got thrown out right. of the tower or not. But it, it almost doesn't matter because what's more important is the making of the symbol and the giving it the meaning and the whole power of that, that it starts off, the claw starts off kind of like an echopraxia. That's what it is. It just repeats the shape that, of the thing that was inside the jewel. And it all starts over again from there. It's really cool. Severian so and Rosha have money. So, and even though they could walk, they have, they hire a fiacre a small hackney coach, like the ones that you see rich people riding in London in period dramas. They decide to hire one of those at the Bitter Gate, which is next to the Broken Court. It's a major transportation hub. I don't know why it's called the Bitter Gate. Maybe, you know, maybe vinegar shops are there. I don't know. <laughs> while, while they walk, they talk about what Thecla said, that most people in the house absolute didn't know that the tower existed. And Rosha basically repeats what Severian has told us twice in this book so far. He says it, that it doesn't do to say so at the tower, but when you're a little older, and Rosha has been a journeyman for all of three weeks, almost you discover the tower isn't the linchpin of this universe. After all, only a well-paid unpopular business that you happen to have fallen into. It's the second time Severian's heard that sentiment. So once from Thecla, once from or third, third. He's or but he said it himself twice. He's gone over mm-hmm. kind of in mm-hmm. one way or the other that you know when you're little, you're delivering messages and you think everything is so important, and then you mm-hmm. go out into the citadel and you realize people have a different opinion of it. So there are three fiacres just where expected. One is an exultant's private cart uh, with blazonings painted on the on the doors, and quote palfreneers in fanciful liveries. Uh, a palfreneer is a guy who is hired to tend the horses and his livery is his uniform. The other two were small and plain. The drivers wear low-furred caps. I wonder what those look like. They're bending over a fire that they started on the street to keep warm. Again, you know, you've seen this scene in period movies. Rosha says that as far as the driver knows, we're just two optimates who had business in the Citadel and are bound now for the echopraxia and an evening of pleasure. That's all he knows and all he needs to know. And we get some exposition that the exopraxia is in the Algedonic quarter south of the Citadel. Algedonics is the study of the sensations of pleasure and pain, especially used in relation to pain that is associated with pleasure. It literally means pain pleasure. So, and there's a whole part of the city <laughs> yeah. just about those things. <laughs> yeah, you're going to name that <laughs> part of a town. Uh, Master Palamon had mentioned that it was one of the oldest parts of the city, and that's like saying the necropolis is old. But you know, the city is constantly moving northward up the Gyle. There are older parts in the south that have been completely taken over by jungle. Uh, only the uh, Omophagists live there. An Omophagist is eater of raw meat. But really, the point is that everyone out there is afraid to light a fire because they don't want to attract unwanted attention. Oh, I just got that might have been a joke, too, that Palamon said the Algodonic Quarter is the oldest. Is it also because that's where the oldest profession is? Oh, is a little joke. Oh, that, that is, could that, be a little that joke could too. well have been a joke. Yeah, that could be it. 
anyway, the Citadel used to be way north of Nessus. And like I said, then the city is quietly moved by it over time. Dorcas and her husband used to live in a part of the city that's now been left behind. Because South is connected to decay and dilapidation, the closer you live to the sea, the less respectable you are. And the German are allowed to leave the Citadel whenever they are not on duty. But the problem is that if you're a torturer, everyone knows who you are and they treat you accordingly. And anyone who lives near the Citadel knows a torturer when they see one. And even if they don't, the soldiers will tell them and the soldiers always know. And Rocha says that as time goes on, everything gets smaller. Less food means fewer people until the new sun comes. Maybe that's a statement of theology, or maybe it's just a saying people say. Yeah, it's an odd thing, too, because he sort of admitted, yeah, you know, population's dwindling. <laughs> you know, the city's the city keeps moving because it's the, the you know, the water is awful and, and um, you know, they have to go to where the water's better. And so it just kind of creeps up because of all the massive pollution and people are dying out and there's not enough to feed everybody. But. Until the myth get until the myth comes true, right? We'll, exactly. We'll just deal with it. So imagine you know the city always creeping up northward and always getting smaller as it does. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Roshi gives Severian some advice about the brothel. He says he knows Severian is nervous, so don't be nervous about being nervous. It, it can be quick if that's what you want. You don't have to talk to the woman if you don't want to. She doesn't care. She'll talk if you like. She'll do what you want within reason. If you hit her or whip her, they'll charge more. Severian says, do people really do that? And he says, ah, you know, amateurs. I didn't think you'd want to. And I don't think anybody in the guild does unless maybe they're drunk. And then he pauses. Look, the women are breaking the law, so they can't complain. Which uh, Wolf doesn't put politics into his books the way he did for Operation Ares, but it still gets in there. <laughs> yeah. And it's interesting here too, that he well here. He also says that I guess prostitution is still illegal, that the brothels are still right. Illegal, yeah. Which is weird because it seems so much of a normal thing. I mean, there is this Algodonic quarter, there's a whole part of the city. Um, so I don't know, is this just kind of a point that, you know, parts of the city are just so corrupt that it just happens. Yeah, I don't know, because it seems like everything they talked about before this, that Gerlos was just going to say, yeah, we'll send you up there and we'll give you some money. It made me wonder, okay, this is all kind of somehow above board. Right. And then right at the end of the chapter, he's like, oh, yeah, but this is illegal, technically. Technically, And and we are technically part of the law enforcement and justice part of this society. So that was one thing that stood out, like that he just throws that in finally at the end of the chapter. Yeah, you know, of course, if the women are breaking the law, well, so are they. Exactly. Well, you know, it could be that in this society, it is really only the women that face the downside it could of it be. being illegal. It could be. It could be. The other thing, too, is that they're, Severian doesn't even really imagine that, you know, that causing pain in a situation like that would be something that someone would want to do. Yeah. It's He's like, Oh, why would you want to bring your work? Yeah. Along <laughs> I don't you? bring the office home yeah. to me with, a, with yeah. home with me. So yeah. the, uh, so anyway, the fiacra rides off to a, on a narrow road that runs crookedly to the East. And that's the end of the, uh, of the chapter. So, yeah, I don't really have a whole lot to go back to with this one. I'll admit, I don't even have a curiositas for this one. Just that I was looking for things that were specifically about this chapter, and I really couldn't find a whole lot. But you have one? 
I have one. Curiositas Urthus. Uh, this one is from the Earth list that Thea and Thecla, their mothers might have been an original and a clone. So the way it works is this way. An exultant goes to court to become a concubine and she takes her kybit with her. And then later she retires and gets married. What does her kybit do then? Arguably, she continues to go with her and becomes her husband's mistress. So they produce half-sisters. And and that's Thea and Thecla. I'm not sure why that why it's added anything. Thea and Thecla aren't they, they look enough like each other to be right. sisters, but they don't. But it does explain why he decided to call them half sisters. It seems like an a detail, an intentional enough detail that I don't feel like ever gets explained in any way, right? Like there's no mm-hmm. ever reason why they're called half sisters at some point. I mean, it could have just as easily been sisters. Unless unless half-sister right. makes it seem like the relationship wasn't quite so close, that could be something. But the that idea does at least give a reason for why they would be half-sisters. And it connects to the whole idea of the concubines and their roles in the society. So, I don't know. I kind of I like uh, it. Yeah, that's a good like point. It. Well, then I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. But yeah, otherwise for this one, I'll admit I don't have a whole bunch. Well... You know, it's like I said, it's a bridging yeah. episode. No one loves the bridging episodes, <laughs> but it, you know, they they need to be there. But you know, we should just push on and find out where they're going. Chapter nine: The House Azure. So this one jumps into some weirdness, <laughs> some weirdness that is a little bit different than we've seen so far, but that I feel like starts to really feel like other parts of the book. To me, this is where Master Alton and the library was a little strange and it was big, but it was more wondrous. This is where we start to have something where it starts to seem like other people know what's going on and we in Severian don't. And that's how so much of the rest of the book feels like. That's why this chapter to me seems like he hasn't left the guild yet, but this is the first step out. You know, after he leaves the guild, the comparisons to Jack Vance begin to really leap out at you. Yeah. Just the overall strangeness of it is mm-hmm. in keeping with everything else that's happening. And I do have to say, I just love the first sentence. It's a long sentence, but it's such a cool description. It's a cool way to set up a setting. So well, I'll, let's hear I, it. I, I got to read it. Our destination was one of those accretive structures seen in the older parts of the city but so far as I know only there, in which the accumulation and interconnection of what were originally separate buildings produce a confusion of jutting wings and architectural styles with peaks and turrets where the first builders had intended nothing more than rooftops. Yeah. It's just this cool way of the city of, of it's one of the first times where apart from spaceships and mm-hmm. the odd whatever the witch's tower is that he starts to describe architecture. That's just kind of grown on top of things. And it's all, you know, slipshod and kind of, but it's, it's all very sort of haphazardly right. come together and become things, which I think is just a really cool way. And he does have that long description later or when he's actually out in the city and just lists those different structures of all mm-hmm. the things that the buildings could have been used for. This is like a preview of that. Yeah, he says that this is the sort of thing that you see 
in the older parts of Nessus, but that he's never seen it anywhere else. And that's from Autark Severian. But uh, yeah, you can see the history of all these buildings and, mm-hmm. and the changes of purpose that they've gone through. Yeah, with no plan. Right. With just, just as time goes on, things get connected. And so that bit of randomness and bit of, yeah, I said haphazard. I like that word. I'll stick with it. That sort of haphazard way that the society is and, and city has developed. The snow outside the house azure is building up into drifts that surround the entrance of the building. I haven't seen that since I was a kid in Ohio. The drifts are wrapping around the wooden carved caryatids that support the roof of the portico. A caryatid is a pillar that's carved in the figure of a woman. And Severian describes the snow as clothing them. Mm. The, the lower windows have dim yellow lights, candles, I suppose. So I want to, uh, one thing just about the caryatids, I do need to give a call out to Alzabo Soup because they had mentioned something about how having columns as caryatids, that that's also something that was often done in classical temples. Oh, so that yeah. it, with that detail by itself, it does suggest that, you know, maybe this building used to be a temple or some kind of house of worship, you know, sort of in the story, but also if it's just there, it's still a kind of call out to, you know, a corrupted version of something that might have been a religious building or a religious setting, which certainly seems appropriate. Well, you know, Severian does refer to one of the prostitutes as a, uh, a Paphian, which refers to the, the Isle of Paphos. Mm-hmm. It was an island off of the coast of Cyprus, where there was a significant Aphrodite worship. And so that's why the prostitutes are sometimes called Paphian. The door is large and in bad condition. Someone opens it before they can knock. The foyer is like being in a jewel box. The walls and the ceiling are covered with blue satin quilting. I suppose this is to, you know, to fit with the name. The guy who admits them, okay, get ready for it wears thick-soled shoes and a yellow robe. And I'm going to get to that. He has short white hair, slicked back, and a beardless face. No lines. He has two glassy eyes, veinless and shiny. So what do we know about this guy? One, he's a robot, presumably. Uh -uh -uh. (laughs) Uh-uh-uh. Everything (laughs) about this scene seems contrived to make a first-time reader believe that this fellow is a robot. Even his mannerisms suggest it, but he's not. Severian is going to encounter this fellow. Hey, did you hear those skeptical quotation marks in my voice, Craig? (laughs) He's going to encounter him again in the House Absolute, and he'll acknowledge that. This is the Autark. Mm -hmm. So I guess the Autark is wearing a mask, right? Is that what the, the eyes are like? It could be. Um, I'm not sure. The only thing, I don't know, when I read this, this time, the thing that stands out to me is the the simile where he says that his eyes were like a sky of summer drought. And we know that that just to totally jump ahead, a failed autark is one who's not going to bring the flood. And, mm. um, you know, and so here's one, an autark who is eventually going to be, you know, dry just like that but severian's the one who will bring the flood so i see that but yeah the eyes could have been a glass so unveined and polished they seemed and i don't know if it's so much a mask because he recognizes his face again later well he says he recognizes him but not immediately and there are other things that call him out particularly he's wearing a yellow robe yeah uh, which is what the autark wears 
And in the Commonwealth, yellow, I guess, is the color of authority. When Severian gets to Saltus, the alcalde, a mayor of sort, wears yellow too. And the description here, I'm just trying to to look at him. When he says that I looked in them as if they were a window, is he saying that the eyes are clear? He says that they're like they're like glass, that they're veinless. So unveined and polished. He paused and uh, he's looking at, at, at Rosha. He paused and though he did not stare, he seemed to look at Rosha more closely. The only way I can think of to pull that off, if he's looking in his direction, at, but his expression doesn't really change. The first time I read this and I saw Talus later, I, and they talk about how he, he wouldn't change his expressions. He would just basically move in gestures that suggested emotions. Mm-hmm. This is what I, I said. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, that's what's happening. That's a That's an interesting connection. I wonder, I'm just sort of throwing out ideas here, but is it possible that this is an Eidolon that's made to look exactly like the Autark? And part of the reason then why his eyes seem sort of, you know, glassy like that is because normally you would think that, you know, the eyes are the really true expression where you can actually see someone. But if this is an Eidolon or even a hologram, maybe, then something like that. I don't know. That's, that's totally throwing an idea out there. Well, when Rosha comes in, he says that he, oh, I recognize you. You've been here before. Mm. One thing, he's there every night. And when he sees Severian, he immediately knows, oh, you only came once. Mm-hmm. You never came again. And the you, so I guess you weren't happy with, with the girl. Yeah. One thing, talk about memory. The Autark remembers every guest that comes to the <laughs> house absolute. I want to say something else about this Autark, by the way. He has thick-soled shoes. What does that tell you? He's wearing shoes to make him look taller. Uh, and you remember that they, it said that he's tall when he's standing, but he's normal-sized when he's sitting? It's because he's wearing those shoes. That makes sense, actually. Of course, now I'm thinking they're pimp boots or something like that, like, <laughs> like super massively high things. But no, but the point is right, like because the shoes would make him you know, slightly more exultant-like. And we know that, it, that the autarchs don't have to be exultants. They can they mm-hmm. come from lots of places. Huh, that makes sense. That actually makes a lot of sense. But yeah, I'll admit, I still don't know the eyes. I've still, I, that's one thing about this. I can't, I don't have a, I'm not satisfied with, with any ideas that I have yet. But if the autarch, I'm going to go back. Mm-hmm. The autarch is a woman trying to pass as a man. Then thick-soled shoes would help. Mm-hmm. That's true. Um, but... We get back to something else. The Autark is a very important person. This is something we we earlier talked about, Father Aniri, possibly being Rudisand. He's a very important man. How is it to the Autark's benefit to pretend to be a pimp in a brothel, wearing a disguise of a robot disguised as the Autark? <laughs> I mean, this doesn't. This whole thing doesn't make any sense, right? And the reasons to to think that this isn't the autarch is precisely that. Like, how could someone who has to manage the war in the north and everything else? How could they have the time to come down and play this role all the time? So my suggestion with that is that he's not doing it all the time. He's doing it at a very specific time that. Father Aniri may have said, now is the time where we need to go get you down there. And, you know, we, we've, we've got a Severian <laughs> to, to work on. I would believe that. That's my first inclination. But then how is it that he knows that Rosha has been there? 
before. Yeah, maybe he's there for a few days. Maybe Father Neri can't pin the exact day on when it is, mm. but you know, Rosha. I guess Rosha could have only been coming right for the last couple of weeks because it's only been what three weeks. Then since he would be able to be free to leave and and wander around. Well, honestly, I don't like it, but the truth is, I don't have a better explanation. Mm-hmm. There's all kinds of theories in the past about this, and none of them are to me are more satisfactory yeah. than than any others. And I feel like that that idea that Enire and this autarch are actually working specifically on Severian and following a bigger plan. It, the one other thing that makes me think that too is specifically in the chapter in Claw when Severian meets him. It's a weird moment where he he goes into the weird picture room. Um, the Autark comes out and says, "Oh, you're you know the only reason I had to come check was we got an alert that somebody." basically walk through a metal detector with a sword mm-hmm. and I had to come check on it. Why would the autark be checking yeah, on a potential be, that's threat? That's the one to check right? on. <laughs> um, but if it's Severian, and we know that Rudison at that point has, is basically trying to lead Severian somewhere. He's been told, you know, go, go get him and show him this picture and whatnot. It does seem like it's a setup to get Severian to interact with the autark. Mm-hmm. Same kind of thing here. That's the only thing that really makes sense to me. Otherwise, I would have no idea why the autark would just be hanging out with, yeah, doing this. You know, these are not high-priced prostitutes either. No. Severian sees that they, oh, they wow, they look just like these these concubines. That's really amazing. And he and then Rosha pays him, and he expects to see him, with, you know, give him a stack of mm-hmm. gold chrysos and. He just gives them, you know, a few silver asimi. Yeah. I think someone once had mentioned on the Earth List that possibly this is how he goes incognito, that he has business to take care of in the Citadel. And while he's there, this is sort of the guys that he stays in. But this is like one of the oldest, most dilapidated areas mm-hmm. of Nessus. Yep. This is where people go for, for some, you know, some truly seedy entertainment. Right. This is not where all of the exaltants are going. So the Autark does have an explanation himself mm-hmm. for why he's there and why he's doing what he does. He basically just says it, it's it's a hobby. I'm going to go ahead and read it because I have problems with it. I don't yep. really believe it. So he wanted to be, he felt like he needed to be a criminal, that to be a good leader, you need to be a criminal. It basically says that the worst law enforcement official is somebody who's never committed a crime. He says, the violent crimes offended my love of humanity, and I lack the quickness of hand and thought required for of a thief. After blundering about for some time, that would be about the year you were born, I suppose I found my true profession. It takes care of certain emotional needs I cannot now satisfy otherwise, and I have I really do have a knowledge of human nature. I know just when to offer a bribe and how much to give, and the most important thing, when not to. I know how to keep the girls who work for me happy enough with their careers to continue and discontented enough with their fates. I know how to make my clients feel that the encounters I arrange are unique experiences instead of something midway between dewy-eyed romance and solitary vice. You felt that you had a unique experience, didn't you? 
it is useful too. It keeps me in touch with the underside of the population. So I know whether or not taxes are really being collected and whether they're thought fair, which elements are rising in society and which are going down. Okay. So I don't believe that the autarch's explanation is mostly true. I mean, I, I don't believe it's really the answer for why he's there. And one thing one thing that helps before we talk about the the sort of logic of it when one part we didn't read, because that's actually two sections, there's a, a section in between where Severian says, I was listening to his voice as much as what he said. And it's almost this just kind of goes to the possible lie of the thing because he's performing it like he's talking mm -hmm. about how he likes to roll those R's. Roll the R's. Yeah, like in a range in a romance <laughs> trilled into the sunlight. Um, yeah. So he he talks about how he's he's performing this explanation rather than necessarily really meaning it. Um, and that just helps you think like, oh, okay, something else is going on when he's yeah. Facing. Well, yeah. the underside of the population and taxes, first place, they can't really tax it mm -hmm. appropriately. And what's he going to learn in the Algedonic Quarter? The Algedonic Quarter is just this side of dead. Beyond the Algedonic Quarter is apparently just jungle. Look, why not be someplace, at least in the living part of the city, if he wanted to find out about all that information? Yep. Mm -hmm. And then th this whole idea that it's a hobby, that it just satisfies certain, I don't, well, okay, I don't know, maybe, but there are, he has many opportunities to satisfy those attitudes uh, from the house absolute or just about anywhere. This particular location is just, it's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense to me. I don't believe it. I get the idea about why he needs, why he feels he needs to be a criminal, but that sounds kind of like a justification after the fact. Yeah. And it's all, I mean, and still it goes back to the sort of implausibility of it because everything he's talking about, like I know how to keep the girls happy and I know how to make this unique experience. Think about how much time it would take <laughs> to have a career like that, where you're sort of helping manage people's lives. Right. He's away at the front for half the year. Right. Right. So, you know, I mean, <laughs> so how does that, that even work. I, yeah. Um, so I still don't feel like he's being genuine there. Something else is going on. Uh, something he, he says he started about the time that mm -hmm. Severian was born. Right. I believe that. Yeah. I don't know what <laughs> I he's do up too. to. I don't, I don't claim to know what he's up to, but I think it has something to do with that. Yeah. And I'm still pretty much convinced that part of the reason he's there is to be close to Severian because, and we haven't, once we get into the later books, it'll be easier for me to make this case, but I still feel like, that Father Aniri and the Autarch have known who Severian was and what his destiny was going to be from the beginning, and that they're actually helping shape him to become the Autarch mm -hmm. from the very beginning. Um, and I might, we, you and I might have slight differences of who we think was involved and how, like with Catherine and things mm -hmm. like that. But I'm still pretty sure that they were involved from the beginning in yeah. one way or another. Otherwise, the whole bit and the houses are just is part of the reason for me. I mean, for him to give an explanation like that also is one of those points where I actually do feel like it's kind of so silly that it points to the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, and Wolf is not playing fair That's yeah. to have a flat out explanation near the end of the book. 
like this. Oh, come on. <laughs> so, so I guess the next question would be, why would he be, if that's the case, why would he be lying about it to Severian there? And we don't necessarily have to get into it now. That would be something I think that would mm-hmm. make more sense once we have a lot more about the old Autark and Father Neri and, and sort of the grand conspiracy going on. But it seems like to me, that would be the better question. I think we should spin those theories when we have when it makes sense when mm-hmm. when we can draw on the text there to in order to spin some of that theory so so you could be really cynical or skeptical and say that wolf just thought this was a cool scene and then later on decided <laughs> that oh i'm going to make that the autark but i think i don't know i the most the reading that makes most sense to me is that once you find out that this is the autark you're basically supposed to be thinking oh wow even way back at the beginning, Severian was the subject of all kinds of conspiracies and plans and plots mm-hmm. and that they'd been watching and, and grooming him somehow. And that certainly does fit with other ideas that people have about you know how many times Severian may have lived this life or how many versions of Severian. All the bigger theories that we'll definitely get to later. This would work totally for that, that, you know, Inire and the, the Autark are specifically here working on Severian, trying to, you know, get to know him, make sure that he goes in the right directions, that he has the right experiences to move on. On that notion of what's all going on in the background, that makes sense. You know, it's just another it's another part of the puppet show to get Severian moving in the right direction. Remember what Michael Andre Drisi had told us that, in his opinion, uh, Severian is actually fairly dangerous. Mm-hmm. So the people trying to manipulate him have to be very careful. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, okay. Well, this could be. Yeah, here's how he can gently nudge him in one direction or the other. I'm not sure how they're controlling this, but this does, like you said, he near the end of the of Citadel of the Autarchy does say that he's beginning to understand why it's called the House Azure. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's a, there's a sense in that it has something to do with, you know, his first movement toward becoming the new son. Mm-hmm. And I, I buy that. And the other thing too, is that I don't really know any other reason why, even if this isn't the Autarch, why is it, so close to looking like the Autark, especially in a world where it seems like nobody exactly knows what the Autark looks like. Um, Severian doesn't, even when he looks at the the coin, you know, he doesn't really recognize this guy's face. Why would they need to be so accurate at this weird little brothel in the middle of <laughs> anywhere else? Like no, nobody would know what any of those other people look like. So why would they? Exactly. Have- None of them have, have seen them or anything. Although, I mean, when, uh, when Severian picks his girl and he, he says, you know, you're not Thecla, you don't look, you, you don't look like her. Apparently that's been a problem in the past that mm-hmm. someone knew that she, she wasn't mm-hmm. truly uh, Thecla. Yeah. Yeah. All right. <laughs> we'll go. I think I, I will say at least I do think this is the Autark. Like I think that it says that in Claw. I I don't have any reason to really doubt that. I've I've heard people give reasons why, but but I feel like it's pretty straightforwardly told that mm-hmm. that's the Autark. He recognizes Severian. Severian has Thecla's memories that this is the guy. He's got his own memory of what he looked like. Right. Um, and it just it seems pretty much like a reveal yeah Yeah. he uh he gives them both a goblet and he says look you're the only ones here lucky you (laughs) and uh rosha says well i'm sure the girls are lonesome and the autark says they are i see you do not believe me but it is so they complain when too many attend their court but they are sad too 
when no one comes. Each will try to fascinate you tonight. You'll see. They'll want to boast when you are gone that you chose them. Besides, you are both handsome young men. This is kind of a cosplay, right? So (laughs) he's still carrying on, you know, that they are actually at the House Absolute. And these are actually the concubines. And that, you know, this is, you know, what it obviously is not, which is a a seedy brothel. But anyway, he looks at Rosha. This is the part where he was staring, but... He, he didn't stare, but he seemed to look at him more closely. He says, uh, you've been here previously, have you not? I remember your red hair and high color. Aha. So Rosha has red hair. Mm-hmm. And in the South, the people are very pale. Uh, I guess the Scandinavians have taken over Chile or something. <laughs> so the savages there, that's his word. He says that they, they paint a fire spirit that looks like him. I, I've looked that up to see what he could be talking about, but I, I just, it's, you know, just a picture of a guy probably with fiery hair or something. Yeah. The only thing I wondered, is there some sort of, you know, ink and fire spirit that we're supposed to know or there that, yeah. not that we're supposed to know, but that we could learn about. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm not sure on that one. Uh, he says that uh, Severian has the face of an exultant. Yeah. You could say he's laying it on, but you know, he didn't say that for Roche. He says that his voice might've been a man's tenor or a woman's contralto. So uh, deep, voice for a woman, a hive one for a man, androgynous. I think sometimes people look at this and say that the androgyny is because maybe he has taken the test and failed and has been um, castrated and that that could be part of it. That certainly is a possibility. But once we know about how autarchs become autarchs, it seems much more likely that the androgyny is because he has women and men inside his head playing at the same time and those are really moving him um just like we know severian once he uh has the alzabo ritual with thecla people will look at severian and see a woman for a moment or or see even thecla for a while and that i think that that mix here is probably more to do with the male and female autarchs inside of him than that if that's true is there any point where someone refers to Severian as androgynous? Not sure as androgynous. That's a good question. People certainly see Thecla, like the little girl in the antechamber, looks at him and says, um, where did that lady go? Where did right. you know? Where did that tall lady go? And it's just that Thecla had kind of taken over Severian for a second mm-hmm. and the little girl thought she saw a woman. So we, we have that. But as far as androgynous, no... I don't think so. I, as anyone who's listened to this point knows, I have my own theory about Olten that when, you know, that because he participated in the, uh, in the ritual, when Severian sees him for the first time, he sees the woman who was, you know, pulled up out of the grave. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's once again, Severian doesn't call him androgynous. androgynous. I don't know. I'm going to have to pay attention to that, especially after he does ingest <laughs> ingest mm-hmm. the autark i'll have to think about that but yeah i don't remember off the top of my head okay. and i don't remember from earth too if severian ever mentions characters in earth of the new sun saying that about him either yeah so you know they go into another room it has a stained glass depiction of the temptation capital t right another point where it seems like this is supposed to refer back to something religious, some sort of well-known mm-hmm. story or allegory. 
I also think it's kind of cool because when Severian meets Typhon, that's often seen mm -hmm. as a retelling of the temptation in the desert. Exactly. Um, and so, yeah, so we kind of get a call out to that immediately. Yeah. And I really want to know what that stained glass thing looked like. like was <laughs> it was the temptation a big dude with two heads and somebody wearing black? <laughs> Or, that would be awesome. Well, um, you know, Severian should have seen what was coming then when he yeah. got there. I, I guess it's probably some analog story to Christ in the wilderness, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. yeah, with the with the, the conciliator. In the next room, it it seems to be bigger than the whole house of Azure. Severian says that it's probably in part an illusion created by having the guests walk through much smaller rooms, but you know. It's hinted in the Claw Conciliator that the House Azure is part of the second house, mm -hmm. a separate whole palace inside the House Absolute. So we have, you know, a Borgias situation again, where a building inside a smaller building has a room that's bigger than the building that contains it. So. Right. And the room where he meets the Autark is that weird painting room that has all the forced perspective about it. I never made mm -hmm. that connection before. So we've got another room each time he's here where perspective seems to mess with space. And yeah, another repetition. Now the ceiling is decorated with white silk in a way that makes you feel like you're in a tent. The two walls on either side are lined with faux columns that look like they're holding every, up everything else. And the, between the walls, they're painted to look like, you know, you're looking outside of a real pavilion. From the center of the room, it's, you know, it's very convincing. And at the other end of the room is a high back chair that suggests a throne. The Autark, no one realizes he's really the Autark, remember? He's, you know, he's pretending to be an Autark cosplayer. He sits down on the throne and Rosha and Severian sit down and wait with cups of wine. It, it feels like a religious ceremony to Severian that is both less real and more serious than an actual one. That's, that's I mean, that's ominous. I'm not sure what it means, but mm -hmm. <laughs> one by one, the ladies are announced and enter. The Chatelaine Barbia, the Chatelaine Gracia. All beauties of the court are here for you, here in the house azure, by night flown here from the walls of gold to find their dissipation in your pleasure. Uh, Severian is incredibly naive. He assumes the statement is meant seriously, and he says, oh, well, surely that's not true. <laughs> to which <laughs> the autark replies, you came for pleasure, did you not? If a dream adds to your enjoyment, why dispute it? And uh, he says, you may have more than one, you know, separately or together. We have some very large beds. <laughs> He's watching the women paraded by and, and Severian imagines that they're all the same woman that he says, quote, that, that she had changed clothing, changed wigs, dusked her face with cosmetics in the few seconds between the other's exit and her entrance. It was absurd, yet there was an element of truth in it, as in so many absurdities. There was something in the eyes of both women, in the expression of their mouths, their carriage and fluidity of their gestures, that was one. It recalled something I had seen elsewhere. I could not remember where, and yet it was new. I felt somehow that the other thing, that which I had known earlier, was to be preferred. Uh, I'm not sure what he's getting at, but... I feel, well, one thing I think here that he's he's doing is, and there's sort of hints here of Jolenta too, what's going to happen, is that you can kind of tell the difference between real and fake beauty. And mm -hmm. you know, one thing that this, the, 
these sort of cosmetic things that he's kind of describing may not be quite as effective as whatever Talus does to Jalenta, but there's definitely a lot going on. There's all kinds of technology for beauty that can um, affect how things are going on. But that line where he says it recalled something um, I had seen elsewhere. I couldn't remember where, and yet it was new. And I felt somehow that the other thing which I had known earlier was to be preferred, that that is kind of like saying I, I had never seen the real person that these people were trying to copy, but I could tell that this was a copy and it made me actually sort of long for the real thing that was better. So it's like a, it's a, like a botanic reference. Kind of. Yeah. It's, like it's sort of, pale sh- pale no, I think it's exactly, idea. yeah, exactly that kind of idea that it's like you, these things were so obviously fake. They were beautiful, but they were obviously fake beauty trying to copy something else. Yeah. It seems totally like a sort of platonic intuition yeah. that he would be having here. Um, and plus two, you know, he has seen one of these real people. He's seen Thecla and he's obviously smitten with her. And so he, you know, it may not be, he hasn't seen the exact Thecla Kybit yet, but, you know, he's, he's seen something real and he's starting to have a real relationship with someone. And so he's right now starting to be able to tell the difference between real and fake in a small way, but but still he's, he's feeling it. Like, I, I feel like that section is all kind of trying to say that, you know, he was young, just like he had just said, like he saw the first girl and he was terribly horny <laughs> and he was like, I want her. <laughs> but at the same time, there's something in Severian that's like, oh, but I, I can still tell that I could have, that there's something better or something more real right. I could go for. So that what they're offering is an in, inauthenticity mm-hmm. and in being that it's a, a, a betrayal. Yeah of what men ought to pursue. This would totally, I'll totally be a shout out to, to geek French theory, but this is totally a place that Jean Baudrillard, if anybody knows Jean Baudrillard and the simulacrum, this would be totally a place to, to bring that up, but that has nothing to do with anything else. That's just <laughs> made me think of it. For all, so, you know, it, it, might. Might. it might. So, uh, Rocha finally chooses the Kaibet of, uh, Chatelain Gracia. The, then the door opens the Chatelain Thecla. And Severian is blown away by the similitude. It seemed really she, just as I had remembered her. Remember, it's kind of mm. dark in here, for starters. Just as I had remembered her, how she had escaped, I could not guess. In the end, I, it was reason rather than observation that told me I was mistaken. What differences I could have detected with the two standing side by side, I cannot say. Although certainly this woman was somewhat shorter. By the way, just one thing, that little line there was reason rather than observation that told me I was wrong. Again, platonic. <laughs> it's just totally reason over <laughs> yeah. in, you know, uh, rationalism over empiricism. The, the Autark recognizes at once that this is going to be Severian's pick. Uh, Rosha pays for both of them. And, you know, like I said, he, Severian thought it was going to cost a lot of money like big stacks of chrysos but it's really just a few silver simi it's it's this is not a high priced brothel and once again you know i i share severian's confusion (laughs) in that the the false thecla takes his hand her perfume is thecla's perfume i guess you know severian can still smell it on thecla she hasn't bathed since she was arrested It's stronger than what Severian smelled on Thecla, naturally, but it's the same scent. It smells like a burning rose. rose. Yeah, I always think this is like the, this is the bathroom version (laughs) of the the perfume (laughs) or the cologne that that she's got. Um, You know, the kind you can get from the stalls in the bathroom 
So I don't know if anyone yeah. else has seen, I maybe I've been to worse places than other people, but, um, <laughs> but yeah, where you can get the really cheap knockoff Drekkar Noir or whatever like that. Um, but yeah, but the rose burning, like that's so perfect. I don't know what a rose burning smells like, but it's, it, yeah, it's a perfect image of that to kind of go with this. So that the rose is one of his symbols and now it's a persecuted yeah, ideal, yeah. right? Yeah. That's, that's Thecla. Yeah. He and the false Thecla walk down the hallway. Once again, he says it's dimly lit and not clean. And then they go to a narrow stair and he asks her, how many of the court are here? And this makes her really happy because, you know, he's, he's playing the game. And so when he, when he asks that, he says, there was something in her face that might've been vanity, satisfied love, or that more obscure emotion we feel when what had been a contest becomes a performance. I love that line. Like, I totally yeah. get it. It's like that thing, like when you're immediate, when you're in the middle of something that you think is going to be a fight or a conflict and you win. And after that, like I think of athletics, like my son's play sports a lot, way better than I ever did. But like, I can tell when they're, they switch for like, if they're really winning a game, when it switches from, you know, struggling to beat the guy to just this sort of confidence that, Oh yeah, I got this in yeah. hand and it's, now, I'm in yeah, the zone, it's in the zone right? and all the pressure falls off and they do better because they're like, Oh, it's, right. it's, I've, I've proven myself and I can just go through the, you know, just do it. Just do it. Yeah. She's, she's excited. She's, she knows she's really pulling it off. I also like that. He says there was something in her face that might have been vanity satisfied or love <laughs> or that more obscure emotion where he talks about that. Like love is in there. Love is, is mm -hmm. sandwiched in between these other two things that, that aren't quite as good. Um, but it's an odd thing to throw love right in the middle there. But it's, again, I feel like that's more about Severian than her because I feel he's still very young. He's still in this situation where we've seen him go in these moments from like lust to weird platonic recognitions that this mm -hmm. is fake. And that, that statement seems so much more about Severian too, of how he's like, okay, I know this is fake, but now I've got Thecla and I really love Thecla, but I know that this is not the real Thecla. And so it's just a whole mix yeah. of all these things. Going on. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's not, it's, it's really interesting what wolf pulls off here is with ambiguity and i guess you know he's mm -hmm. well known for his ambiguity but this is this is kind of tough it's an ambiguity of emotions but he's he really moves into it with real confidence yeah. so it, he asks you know are all the are many of the court here and and she says tonight very few because of the snow i came in a sleigh with gracia it's very and you know he though he, he assumes that she had only commuted, you know, from one of the dirty alleys next to the house of Jure and, and that she walked, didn't come in a, in a sleigh, but you know, Severian finds that the cosplay is, you know, appealing. So he says, yet yeah, what she said, I found more meaningful than reality. I could sense the sweating destriers leaping through the falling snow faster than any machine, the whistling wind, the young, beautiful, jaded women bundled inside in sable and links dark against the red velvet cushions. They nearly get to the top of the stair and he hears someone just out of sight. She had already reached the top of the stair and nearly out of sight, he hears someone say to the false Thecla, my dearest sister. And when he sees her, it's the image of Thea, the woman 
who Severian saw that night with Vodalus, heart-shaped and a black hood. Uh, is he saying that this false Thea is wearing a black hood? Was Thea so into black hoods <laughs> that that's all she wore? I don't know. Yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But... It's, it's kind of it's it's, it's vague. Mm-hmm. It's it's not it's not clear whether he's remembering that she has a black hood or that she was wearing a right, black hood. Right. I suppose it's it's more likely that it's <laughs> that he's remembering, but I don't know. It's the way he says. False necklace says, "You see now what you might have had if you'd only waited for one more to come out." And he says, "A smile." I had learned to know elsewhere lurked at one corner of my Paphian's mouth. It's Thecla's smile. And so we have to know what Paphian means first. And this is, you had uh, talked yeah. about the island of Paphos. Right. Yeah. And it's a center for Aphrodite worship. And a Paphian is also a prostitute. It's a very in reply, sir. I would have chosen you still, but false Thecla isn't having it. Sure you would. You kept a perfectly straight face, but your eyes rolled like a calf's. She's pretty, isn't she? <laughs> as far as she's concerned, what Severian was looking at was you know real admiration, rather than you know being amazed at seeing this person again. Yeah. In this place, so they go to a tiny bedroom with a huge bed, a, a thurible that's an incense burner. It hangs from a ceiling by a silver gilt chain. There's a lamp stand with a pink shade. It stands in the corner. There's a little dressing table with a mirror, a narrow clothes cabinet. There's barely room to move in. She offers for him to undress her, but she instructs him how to undo the fasteners and warns him to be careful because he's going to be charged if he tears the clothes. Severian continues to cosplay. He says, I would think, Chatelaine Thecla, that you would have plenty of clothes. And she says, I do, but do you think I want to return to the house absolute in a torn gown? And he says, you must have others there here. A few, but I can't keep much in this place. Someone takes things when I'm gone. The clothes look expensive from a distance, but now that he touches them, he can see that the material is thin and cheap. And now that she's undressed, he backs up as far as he can to look at her. He says, there was nothing of Thecla about her. All that had been a chance resemblance, some gestures, a similarity in dress. I was standing in a small cold room looking at the neck and bare shoulders of some poor young woman whose parents perhaps accepted their share of Roche's meager silver gratefully and pretended not to know where their daughter went at night. So this is where a big change happens for Severian in this scene. Mm-hmm. That after this, it gets honestly a little bit disturbing because he's been <laughs> yeah. going with it so far, even though he says over and over again throughout this, he's like, I knew it wasn't real, but I was kind of wrapped up in the fantasy of it. And he even tries to say like that sentence you mentioned before, a smile I had learned to know elsewhere lurked in the corner mm-hmm. of her mouth. It's almost like he's trying to convince himself like, oh yeah, she kind of has Thecla's mannerisms and oh yeah that's i recognize mm-hmm. Thecla in here like he's trying to convince himself that it's close that, that it's very similar but then when you know when literally all the the decorations and clothes are off he's like oh yeah you're not and right. he even says there was surely more in my voice than i had intended and yeah he says says you are not chatelaine thecla what am i doing here with you yeah and yeah, he, I guess there, there was a sense of personal contempt when, in his voice that he didn't yeah. intend for it to yeah. be there. And the even sad, more sad thing is that 
the woman's like, oh, you know, she reacted like she had seen this before. Like, oh, people want the fantasy. And then when they realize the fan or they when the fantasy can't maintain itself strongly, they turn. And that's what she sees. He says she saw a fear flicker across her face. So so she says, I am Thecla if you want me to be. And he makes a a gesture and she assumes he's going to hit her. He says, there are people here to protect me. All I have to do is scream. And you may hit me once, but you won't hit me twice. What he does next, you know, it's kind of mean. He says, no. He says, yes, there are three men. There's no one. This whole floor is empty and cold. You don't think I've noticed how quiet it is? Rosha and his girls stayed below and perhaps got a better room there because he paid. The woman we saw at the top of the stair was leaving and wanted to speak to you first. Look. And so he picks her up by the waist. Scream. No one will hear you. And she doesn't scream. He puts her down on the bed. Yeah, that that moment where he just lifts her up and throws her. Yes, yeah, she was small. But it also reminds you that, you know, I feel like sometimes you read this and he's still talking about being an apprentice. And so you feel like, oh, Severian's still kind of like a kid. But, you know, he's these guys have had to train, obviously, in, in all kinds of stuff. So right. he's got some real physical you know, power in this situation. And he's mm-hmm. starting to act more like, you know, it's, it's a brute brutish thing to just pick someone up and mm-hmm. threaten them to scream. Um, and that scene right there reminds you sort of, of yeah, Severian may be young, but he's still got a ton of power that he's doesn't necessarily know how to control at this point. Yeah. I mean, he could have, he could have calmed down said, no, no, look, look, I'm sorry, you know, whatever. But no, he, he doubles down. On, I could hurt you and no one would rescue you is the, mm-hmm. what he is, what he, he goes out of his way to demonstrate. But then he, after he puts her down, he, he sits down beside her and the false Thecla, you know, she gets back to work. She says, you're angry because I'm not Thecla, but I would have been Thecla for you. I will be still. And she takes off his coat. You're very strong. And says, says, no, I'm not. He seems tall, but he says he he kind of implies that he's really just lanky. He says that there are some other apprentices that are younger than him that were already stronger. She says, oh, very strong. Aren't you strong enough to master reality even for a little while? So now we're going to get an observation, a perspective that is often quoted from this book. But I, I... I think I want to stipulate that I don't think we are supposed to take this side of it, take her side of it. This is the temptation of Severian. This is the devil speaking to him. It's supposed to sound alluring, but it's false. Yeah, we'll go through that. I I agree with you. I think it's even more complicated than that because it's it's something that I think is obviously true, but has to be true in a very different way. That mm-hmm. I'll take that out. Yeah, I'll just let you keep going. <laughs> but. Well, yeah, I want to hear that. She she says weak people believe what is forced on them. Strong people what they wish to believe. Forcing that to be real. What is the autark but a man who believes himself autark and makes others believe by the strength of it? And then Severian says, "You are not Chatelaine Thecla," and she replies, "But don't you see? Neither is she, the Chatelaine Thecla whom I doubt you've ever laid eyes on." Oh, no, I see I'm wrong. You have been to the house absolute? And he says, no. He says, well, sometimes clients say they have. I always find pleasure in hearing them. They And he says, have they really been? Really? And she you know, shrugs her shoulders. I was saying that Chatelaine Thecla is not the Chatelaine Thecla, not the Chatelaine Thecla of your mind, 
which is the only Chatelaine Thekla you care about. Neither am I. So what then is the difference between us? He says, well, none, I suppose. While I was undressing, which by the way, so now once he starts to take his clothes off, it's almost as if in this scene, at least she's won the argument, right? Like <laughs> they start a theological discussion at this point. <laughs> right. Yeah. In, in the middle, which is great and <laughs> weird, but yeah. So, so then he says, he says, nevertheless, we all seek to discover what is real. Why is it? Perhaps we're drawn to the theocenter, which is a word I assume I think is made up. I should have checked, but but about the center or the God, right. the God center or something. And he says, that's what the Hierophants say, that only that is true. And what's cool is he says that while he's giving in to the fantasy. Right. Right. And he's he's undressing in front of a prostitute while he's you know, starting this little conversation. Yeah. And then she says, she kissed my thighs knowing she had won. Are you really ready to find it? That true Theocenter, you must be clothed in favor, remember. Otherwise, you'll be given over to the tortures. You wouldn't like that. No, I said, and took her head between my hands. So we can know, first of all, there's a whole lot we got to unpack here. But that last thing, too, it's, you know, she's immediately kind of brought up without either of them knowing it at this point, the test, Mm -hmm. right? You must be clothed in favor to actually find that true thing that will be salvation. That's kind of an allusion to, to the actual test. Otherwise, you'll be given over to the tortures. We know that the autarchs actually do Mm -hmm. kind of have some torture. It also means that there's a judgment that comes on people who give into fantasy. And then to say at the very end, you'll be given over the tortures. Well, that's who he is, Mm -hmm. right? So it's sort of this weird circular thing where in all these, these sort of weird, vague illusion ways that they're talking about it, it's almost like saying Severian's going to be the one who has to decide for himself whether he wants to find what's real. And also maybe he'll be the one who judges himself, like if it comes back to the tortures, which is, which is complicated. <laughs> well, I think it's interesting that there is, there is a theological doctrine popularly known that means something different to, to the people you know, out in Nessus. But Mm -hmm. refers to a real thing, feels to the real test. But through all of this, I mean, we've got, this is actually a really, I feel like, super cool, complicated chapter because it's all about mimicry, falsehood, having a sense that there's a truth, you know, being able to to recognize the truth by seeing false things, which is a weird idea. It's not like that. It's when we talked about that platonic moment before. It's a strange one. Because it's not what people usually think, which is that I would prefer the true thing instead of the false thing. Instead, Mm -hmm. it's a more complicated idea that says, maybe you can actually get to the true things by starting with the false things and recognizing what those false things are pointing at. And that's a different way to look at it. That also means that when she says that thing that weak people believe what's forced on them and strong people what they wish to believe, forcing that to be real that's kind of saying you may live in like you want Thecla right now. I'm a fake Thecla, but you can will me to be Thecla and I can be that for her right now. But also what that means is that I think oddly enough, even while he's, you know, having sex with her, he's realizing how disappointing that is. And it probably makes him love the real Thecla even more. It's an odd way to talk about it, but it's almost like saying having like giving into this illusion for a while is negative because it's it's something 
fake, but also it has a positive outcome if it can make you turn away from those illusions to something more powerful. That totally goes back to the symbol discussion that we had before in a weird way, because imagine it like this, that, that there are stories here, there are legends about the conciliator that are all wrong, that are all messed up and, and that are just as sort of weird and convoluted as the Brown book. Nonetheless, Severian, by trying to piece together some things about those, those false conciliator stories is still able to figure out some way to make the real outcome of those things happen. Like there's still, it's almost like saying he never has the story of of Christ. He never has the actual Bible story to tell him sort of how to live. And you can say it in this way, but there's enough there that he can sort of find the meaning of it and still try to live that, which is another way of talking about how even in a world where maybe there is absolutely no religion, that it might be that sort of atheistic world that Thecla talked about. There's still a way to get the outcomes of religion. In, or at least of, of those stories. There's a way to kind of make them true, even if they're false, mm. which is kind of what I think is partly going on with some of the symbol talk in some places, that this may well be a world where there literally is no religious meaning, but Severian makes it true nonetheless, mm. which is a weird way to look at the book, but I feel like there's a lot of there's stuff about there. So anyway, the, that's part of my... One thing is, is true is that the false Thecla is a symbol of the real Thecla, mm -hmm. but yep. she says that, you know what? The real Thecla, she's just a, a symbol of the Thecla. Mm -hmm. that's, uh, that's the ideal in your mind. Yeah. And that that's the only one you care about. Like right. that, that's, that part turns it back to, you know, it's all very selfish on your part. Like it's almost like that part almost sound, makes it sound like you don't really want the real thing. Mm -hmm. You just, it's more about your desire for something. And if you can just fool yourself, then you'll be fine. That's kind of what I feel like she's her, her particular right. way of looking It's a dark at that. framing, yeah. but the, on the other yeah. in another sense, the ideal, the in a platonic sense, the ideal is the one that matters. Mm -hmm. One last thing to mention about this chapter is to remember, too, that it's partly told by Thecla. And that oh, that's true. Yeah. gives a whole different level of, you know, we certainly don't know that when we read it the first time. But when you're rereading it, Thecla is here sort of seeing all these things, mm. too. And I don't know that there's actually a specific place in the text where that comes through. But if you know that that's going on, it frames the chapter in a way that adds a whole different level of things. And I don't know if I can actually spell it all out right now because I'm not exactly clear what it means, but it makes it even more complicated about what's the real yes. sort of desire for Thecla here. Right. And, you know. Well, the, the events would have been, are the same. And Severian, mm -hmm. you know, it was only Severian here who went through all this. And yet... Mm -hmm it's quite entirely possible that the the filtering and the context is different than it would have been otherwise. Okay, but let's go ahead. We want to talk just a little bit about the the first part of the next chapter just because it's still related. Yeah, cuz I think we got to wrap all of this up and there's there's still some things that he has to say about about this. <laughs> Because Severian does go through with having sex with the false Thecla. 
<laughs> and mm-hmm. this is the kind of thing with Severian. He can recognize the difference between good sex and bad sex, but he rarely actually turns down bad sex. <laughs> so Severian never goes back to the house Azure. However, everything about the place was creepy. He's here's something as we're leaving. He says, um, before Rosha and I left the house, the white haired man, that's, you know, the autark catching my eye had drawn from the bosom of his robe what I had first thought was an icon, but soon saw to be a golden vial in the shape of a phallus. He had smiled, and because there was nothing but friendship in his smile, it had frightened me. This is really, really weird and creepy the first time. It's really, really weird and creepy the second time and the third time. Tyler, hopefully at some point you're going to get to the the point where Severian becomes the autark, you know, gets has the mantle handed over to him by the other autark. Mm-hmm. And you say, Oh, wait, the autark has a goal, has a vial in his belt that he keeps, and it has the whatever the, the, the Alzabo drug that mm-hmm. is used to uh transfer all of his memories over into Severian. I don't know what he thought to, I guess maybe um, keep your eye on this if you ever need it. You'll know where to find it. But it, uh, I, I could definitely see why it would creep young Severian out. Yeah. And it's also, there. there is sort of that in that moment where he's like, he smiled uh, because there'd been nothing but friendship in his smile before it had frightened me. And it's almost like, you know, Severian's never even been close, I guess, to, to someone who is making kind of a homosexual pass at him, which is, I think, what he totally is taking this to be. And it's unsettling to him because he's like, what's going on? He finds out later, of course, that it's, that's not at all why like if this is the autark he's pulling out the vial and sort of feeling it not because of the phallus shape but because of the what's inside of it now you can't ignore the phallus shape anyway it just seems like an odd <laughs> i have many vials that i could pick but i'll pick this one <laughs> right but i'll pick this one you know which i guess kind of connects to that symbol of you know if you fail then you know you mm-hmm. lose your virility the, yeah. the autark loses the virility so that that vial is then the next chance right yeah. for the next person so it's sort of like a symbol of virility so on on that level it works but yeah but i think that part of the joke here is that that severian is totally caught off guard and feeling you know like a normal adolescent (laughs) teenage kid who you know is already worried about his manhood or whatever and then this happens so he's totally caught off guard by that well perhaps it's traditional for the autarchs to keep it in that vial uh, because you know if they fail the test yeah they they are castrated so perhaps that's why mm-hmm. it, that 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 particular shape of the uh, of vial is selected yep it's almost like a symbol that then it that virility will move on to the next one whenever they they get this so yeah also by the way not the only phallus shaped <laughs> object <laughs> that no, we're gonna we have to going deal up. with in this book um <laughs> Once we get, yeah, there's, there's, uh, yeah, uh, the, the, one of the stranger scenes that, that Wolf wrote in this book, disturbing in a lot of ways and darkly funny, I have to admit. But when, when we find out a little (laughs) conversation that Severian had with, was it Palamon or Gerlo's? I I think it's Gerlo's. I forget. 
It was Gurlo's. Okay, Gurlo's. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. We'll get there. <laughs> not, not, I have to admit, not my favorite part of the book, but. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's part of the job. So. It is part of the job, which is kind of what he's saying too in that part. But, but yeah, so that's, that's the other thing too, that young Severian here is really kind of misunderstanding yeah. some things about that. But from then on, you know, he just has Rosha keep his share of the money and he never goes back. He says that the pain had been too pleasurable, the pleasure too painful, so that I feared in time my mind would no longer be the thing I knew. So I guess that's how it came to be called the Algidonic Quarter. Maybe so. This is also, if I'm right, it's maybe that he never goes back to the House Azure, but there is... And the way he phrases this is more that I never went back there to that place. But he does talk at some other point, right, that he would often go into other brothels after this, right? He does say that. So if I'm remembering correctly. He, he, he did not swear off prostitutes because of this. Right. It was just this place in particular that, that he did. So, you know, the plan was that they'd go there. And be, he'd stay satisfied and be able to remain objective about Thecla. I think Gerlois is a strange, strange man to send Severian to a brothel like that and, and think it could diminish his attraction to their prisoner at, rather than yeah. inflame it. And it totally backfired because exactly like they talk about or like we talked about then in that Severian said at the end of the chapter he's like you know we still mm-hmm. seek for what's real and getting something that's a copy copied version makes you want the real thing even more and that's precisely mm-hmm. what happens to him with Ekla but in a way it does in a way it does work though he says and this is kind of a little strange here at the end of this section he says some days passed before I could rid my thoughts of Thecla of certain impressions belonging to the false Thecla who had initiated mm-hmm. me into the Anacreontic diversions. <laughs> <laughs> you know what those are. And fruition. <laughs> and fruitions of men and women. So, yeah, the diversions and fruition of men and women. <laughs> that sounds like something Girl Louise would say. That's awesome. That's <laughs> such, a, such a great phrase. Uh, possibly this had an effect opposite to that Master Gurlois intended, but I do not think so. I believe I was never less inclined to love the unfortunate true Thecla than when I carried in my memory the recent impressions of having enjoyed her freely. Let me take a shot at this paragraph. Or, or why don't you give it a shot first? Well, I was just going to say he says that, but then all of his actions kind of eventually yeah. go in the wrong way, go in the, the opposite way. But yeah, so... On the one hand, I think that part is saying, you know, my love for Thecla was now kind of mixed up and stained with my feeling of awkwardness with the young woman that I'd had. Mm-hmm. And and so he says after that, it was as I saw it more and more clearly for the untruth it was that I felt myself drawn to redress the fact and drawn through her, though I was hardly conscious of it at the time, to the world of ancient knowledge and privilege she represented. So the one thing, I think what he's saying there is, I felt like I needed to make up for the fact that I had settled for a bad fake, and I just felt kind of guilty too for trying to love her in this weird way that's sort of like taking her image and without it really being her. So So he says there that, I was drawn through that to the sort of higher things that she stood for in my mind. Yeah, yeah. He sublimates 
through his, I guess his, his disappointment and guilt. And he says that, and I think that's certainly true, but also just eventually then the fact that he does what he does, it seems to make him, he, he definitely absolutely does fall for Thecla even more um, in the long run. So yeah, he, first he says it, it had the opposite effect and maybe it did, but then it, um, it, it binds him to her in a way that is a, in a sense is much more, is much deeper than perhaps Gurlouise could have anticipated. Right. And also he does go on here to talk about how, you know, I, we talked even more about books and I was so in love more with, you know, with the, the world of learning that she represented. Yeah. It's almost like, he's like, I wanted to purify our relationship somehow and make it not about sex, but all about these higher things that she could show me. But of course we learn later on that, you know, he talks about how they did have sex. This is really good section, though, these last couple paragraphs. And so I'm going to go ahead and read them, and we can draw what we want from them uh, or just end it. It says, uh, he says, the books I had carried to her became my university, she my oracle. I am not an educated man. From Master Palamon, I learned little more than to read, write, and cipher with a few facts concerning the physical world and the requisites of our mystery. If educated men have sometimes thought me, if not their equal, at least one whose company did not shame them, that is owing solely to Thecla. The Thecla that I remember, the Thecla who lives in me, and the four books, what we read together and what we said of it to one another, I shall not tell. To recount the least of it would wear out this brief night. All that winter, while snow whitened the old yard, I came up from the oubliette as if from sleep and started to see the tracks of my feet left behind me and my shadow on the snow. Thecla was sad that winter, yet she delighted in talking to me of the secrets of the past, the conjectures formed of higher spheres and of the arms and histories of heroes millennia dead. That's essentially, I guess, the pleasure of, of reading this book the way we do. Mm -hmm. And I love that I started to see the tracks my feet left behind me and my shadow on the snow. Mm -hmm. So he's starting to finally put together um, a little history. Yeah, himself. where he was. Yep. Exactly. Well, that's a lot. <laughs> We've got a lot. So a lot of good stuff. Yeah, it's sort of funny how you have the, the bridging chapter where it seems like not a whole lot goes on. And then you get that really compact house is your chapter which just has a whole lot of things going on at different levels it's really really fun stuff we'll get we jumped ahead into the next chapter but we will we'll step back and and mm -hmm. stick with that one the last year it, it, things start fresh actually after that point in the yeah. chapter that's a good actually i i don't know why he, he moved the beginning of that chapter there it should have been moved a, a few paragraphs later so that's i guess you know it was a long one, but we've got to the end. We did. So I guess we can sign off pretty quickly here. Just again, as usual, folk, if you would like to comment about anything, disagree with us, have a totally different idea, or if you don't think that that actually was the autark, let us know. <laughs> let us, you can <laughs> talk to us on, on the Rereading Wolf Facebook group on Twitter, on uh, our Reddit or our subreddit. Yeah. Also, you can send us, if you don't want to send it on social media with everyone else, you want to send it more privately, you can send it to uh, rereadingwolf at gmail.com. 
we check that. Yep, and we would love to hear from you, and we'll definitely talk about anything from any episode. It doesn't have to be from the last one. We will definitely respond, because we know lots of people will be reading reading and rereading and starting at different times, and even if we're months down the line and you want to talk about Chapter 1, feel free. I, I don't think we'll ever stop <laughs> addressing uh, really interesting comments, so I please, please bring them on. That's really kind of a large portion of why we do it. Yes. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. We will talk next time as we get closer and closer to Severian's exile. Thanks, everybody. (laughs) I had this image of you. You had this image of me. Your image would talk to my image. My image would talk to your image. And somewhere along the way, our images sort of let each other down. a sign off you can just you can do the the, thanks everybody thanks everybody i cannot wander in the corridors of time